Listen to those country chops. Sounds like Billy Preston. Yeah, well, I mean, hey, all that B-Bender telly work, and I still can't get a call from the King Bucks. (laughs) (laughs) Those guys are still around? I don't know. Jeez. Hello, boys and girls. This is The Backstory, a podcast about songs with killer backstories. And today we're taking a little bit of a departure from our normal routine. We are going to be talking about a song called Get Back. (laughs) While we're on the subject of Get Back, let's talk about that new movie that just came out, the documentary from Peter Jackson about uh, the Beatles' second-to-last recording session, if you will, sort of. Yes. We also have a guest, our first-ever guest. Oh, well. And his name is Chad Stockschlager. How you doing, old boy? Hey, all right. Good to see you, fellas. And at this early uh, hour of the day, I must say, I was hoping for uh, perhaps some sort of cantaloupe uh, ball uh, arrangement, uh, maybe a nice <laughs> breakfasty fruit. This offering. is a this is a tier two recording studio, so we don't provide that kind of shit around here. Well, I say you can that. say shit on this podcast. It is interesting, though, that we're meeting so early in the morning because that uh, seems to be quite fitting of uh, what we're about to discuss. Right, uh, right. The bleary-eyed early morning nonsense that uh, unfolded uh, in such beautiful form uh, in this documentary, yes? Oh, for sure. They, uh, I mean, I guess 11 o'clock, it seemed like they were getting there around 10 or 11 every day. Uh, depending. John yeah. John kind of showed up whenever he felt like it. <laughs> totally, totally. <laughs> Chris and Chad have been part of a Beatles tribute band for, all, I think, three decades now uh, in Dallas called Hard Night's Day. And they're going to have like a lot of knowledge about the Beatles because they're basically fake Beatles. I mean, I haven't been in that band in seven years. But dude. you've done some fill-in stuff, and you've, you've toured with the Paul McCartney band. I mean, don't yeah, even, yeah, no, I, I don't, mean, I'm don't not, argue I'm not with disputing me. your. I was, you know, <laughs> I was just clarifying your. They're not a tribute band either, you know. Tribute bands are the ones that dress up and do the wigs and the suits, and you know, the I boots. stand firmly against that. See, and I, don't, always I don't know about have. that because I was in a be- well. I guess the Beastie Boys were a tribute band, the or the. The band I was in that covers the Beasties, we were, I guess, a tribute band because yeah, we did dress did, up. They did do the costume, but y'all yeah. did y'all did some costumery. Mm, no, I've never, I've refused my entire career to do the costuming. I mean, I'll, <laughs> I'll I'll wear a suit, but I have never shelled out for the Sullivan suit and the Beetle boots, and I will not wear a fucking wig under any circumstances. Well, why so. would you need to? Your hair is growing like Rapunzel <laughs> I'm, over I'm there. I'm the white-haired Beetle. That's right. <clears throat> so, Chris, why don't you? Uh, we'll just. You made like a lot of notes here. I, I just kind of made I made some highlight bullet points of, of of things that I loved or things that I noticed about it. But it's it's really hard to know where to start because anytime okay, so, so anytime anybody has mentioned this to me, I've made a point at all recent uh, gatherings amongst whether it be family or friends or whatever, not to bring it up because you know it's the kind of thing where my wife's gonna be like, oh god, here he goes. But the minute somebody brings it up to me, I'm like, "You're talking about in the past before this movie came out." No, no, out, I'm talking what? about in the past two weeks. Oh, okay. Since it's come out, oh yeah, three yeah. weeks, whatever it's been. <laughs> You've been waiting to get. Well, in I'm this just room saying. I'm just talk. saying. I can talk about this for three or four hours without taking a breath, and I kind of need to be prompted in order to go because I don't even know where to start. I hear you. Well, the, <laughs> I, I, let me just start by saying that the when I heard this movie 
was coming out. Um, I heard it. I think I heard it first from Stephen Colbert because he went. You know, he's a huge Tolkien fan, and so he has a relationship with Peter Jackson. He's he's gotten to stay at his house. Peter invited him to come stay in that wow. Hobbit replica. He's got like a Hobbit house replica on his property, and Stephen was allowed to go spend the night there, like just as a fanboy. And while he was there, he got to go in and see this thing that Peter was working on that was like a secret. And it was like the early editing sessions of this Get Back movie. And so Stephen Colbert got like, before anybody got to see some stuff. And he asked Peter what like the coolest thing so far is. And basically Peter was like, the, the craziest thing is that when I was showing this to Paul, he was seeing some conversations that he didn't know even happened, you know, like conversations between John and George about solo songs, conversations about with Ringo and George about like the future of the band. And just, it was shocking to Paul to see that these conversations happened. He didn't even know. And he said, it would have been really nice to know that we could have stayed together and just done our solo careers and been Beatles like, come back every year and do some Beatles stuff. Like he, there was so much he wished he had known or maybe things right. would have gone differently. Well, and and the, you have to, you have to think about the way that Paul and Ringo and uh, subsequently, uh, I guess George and John too, uh, always looked back on that period. They had a very kind of distorted viewpoint of what that represented to them because they had maybe seen some of the footage, but then of course the film, let it be was released right right as they broke up none of them went to the premiere the press hated it 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 was it, you watch the film let it be i i i you know we've all seen bootleg copies of it that mm -hmm. have circulated since the laser disc was around in the 80s um and it is a very dour film it's a it's a downer and uh so they had this preconceived notion that all it was was I mean they believed the narrative that had been spun forever which was that this was three weeks of pure misery which there is some truth to that but it wasn't that simple because clearly you can see that they are still brothers that they still love each other and that the majority of the time they spend during this they're giggling and goofing off and and um you know it's it's I think I think Paul and Ringo didn't expect that they were going to see stuff that would make them laugh or smile and, and be like, oh, wow, this is really amazing footage. They, It's long been believed that McCartney was the one suppressing this because he didn't want the public to see him. Well, and that's yeah. actually something that you and I have talked about for <clears throat> what feels like ages in terms of uh, would this thing what would it take for this thing to ever actually see the light of day? Right. Like a proper readdressing of this footage. Yeah. And I think the... I mean, it's the holy grail for, for Beatle fanatics. That you know? we always came to was, well, maybe maybe we'd have to lose McCartney before this thing before ever... He'd have, before it would be green-lighted, yeah. Because the only way it seemed like it would happen on his watch is if it was totally whitewashed and the history retold in some sort of light, carefree fashion. Right. Uh, but... Going back to your point about the bootlegs that we've all grown up with, I mean, I don't recall even seeing the original until, you know, the mid-90s or something, and it was like a 50th generation copy or whatever. Yeah, it's just whatever. awful looking, you know. Yeah. It's, so, it's so grainy. And so before we even get into this, I think it's worth <clears throat> noting just what a, a thing of beauty the actual film is, the footage and the Peter Jackson treatment of the actual old crusty tapes. Yeah. 
is a thing of wonder. I it mean, definitely is. Um, and I feel like the the if you compare and contrast the two guys that made their movies, Lindsay Hogg, that's his name, right? Yeah. Michael Lindsay Hogg, and then Peter Jackson. At the end of all of the, the like, Lindsay Hogg was at the sessions all day doing all that work. And then he had to go through and do all of the watching and editing. So I bet by the time it was time to start doing the post-production, he was probably at his wits end anyway. He just experienced that whole deal. And, well, and he was they having had kind to of been giving him the shaft the whole time. Yeah, and, like, and he was having to deal with all of the, the, the bullshit of, of them, the four of them telling them what they didn't want to see. or what You exactly. know, I mean, I'm sure that throughout the entirety of 1969, as the Beatles' dream unraveled, right? Because it did. It unraveled over '69. He was probably having to deal with so much shit behind the scenes. Uh, so I'm thinking that you compare like the way Lindsey Hogg was mentally and just kind of like what a task it was at hand to try to hurry up and get this out so they can get their money back and like have a product versus the having all of this time to go by and the Beatles just their their popularity and world domination just continues to grow and grow and Peter Jackson comes along who has tons of money tons of time and is a fan of the Beatles I bet he just the perspective that he had going into this is so part of, it's part of why this is so much better I think because he just had like a fresh attitude and didn't have any preconceived crap. Wasn't, that, wasn't the story, I, I think I read it in an interview with him, that he had been called to Apple because they were curious about some of the restoration techniques he'd used in that World War One film. Mm -hmm. And he had said, well, what are you guys doing with all those, all of that footage from the Get Back sessions? Like he, as a fanboy, just, just <laughs> he said, oh, well. Yeah, they're there. Yeah, no, I, I <laughs> you know, I'm sure I, it just like it's a major. The, the, just the I fact don't that they let him. It have makes sense that it came out to that. You know, it makes sense that it came out so amazing because just the set of circumstances were so different for Peter versus the first dude. One of the things that's uh, frustrating, and and you catch more of this on repeat watches, but it's just the fact that they were only filming so much. Yeah, but they were recording. Audio. I mean, there are apparently 150 hours of audio, right. but only 56 hours of video. What Chad said, like the first thing I would say about Peter Jackson's magic, the first thing that is so obvious is how he takes audio that doesn't have video and sort of magically makes it look like yeah. he's recording this audio with video that he'll show you like if George is speaking, but he doesn't have video of that he'll take another piece of video that looks like he's saying that but it'll be like the back of george's yeah. head and you think you're watching yeah, this he, but he put he he manages to make that work pretty i mean you can you can notice it on repeat viewings you'd be like oh that's not totally what's actually being said there but it is the right <laughs> it's the right time frame you know oh this is happening today it, you remember i, I would <laughs> resist poo-pooing that whole thing because i've heard people say oh it's not matching up but it's like Dude, what are you going to sacrifice any of that—the audio or the visual? I mean, well, hell no. Yeah, when work. you have when you have really golden quotes from them, it's like that audio has to be there. So one way or the other, we're going to get this yeah. this line yeah. from George. You're not going to go to like a still photo or something. Yeah. The yeah. scene this morning was playing on the TV where uh, the kid was talking to John about the cats, and he kept saying, "Did you eat the cat? Did you eat oh, the cat?" I and, love that. That's... And like, it's it, it, you can tell that they, they didn't have the video ones. of him saying that, so they have like. This thing and it looks kind of like 
you know, Kung Fu Theater or Forrest Gump. When you remember when yeah, they would right. fudge some of the stuff in Forrest Gump, it kind of reminded yeah, me of yeah. that. That's a, that's a great scene though, and that's that's. I, I mean, we could talk about all of these. There are a million just little moments there, but that scene where he's talking to Heather about about eating kittens. That's cla- classic <laughs> like, linen. Oh, you don't eat the ones with the black spots. Yeah. You don't yeah. eat any cats. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's great. Yeah. She's so funny the way she interacts. And she's just like, no, you don't eat cats. Well, let's start. Let's start with uh, <laughs> let's start with how this bad boy goes. I mean, I, I really dug the way they did the zoom in and out of the calendar. That was that, really cool. Uh, that Very was cool. a brilliant narrative device. Totally. Doing that because because it, it, it totally put the entire thing and I mean, you you get a clear visual yeah. of what they're up against. Yeah, and and and, and the uh, montage too. I forgot that was like really the first thing you see. Yeah. Is that... Well, it, it it's great because it establishes where they were at that point. And and one of the things, and I might as well talk about it now because it's the very beginning. You have to recognize what a terrible idea this was. It, it, it's an insane idea they were that and this was mccartney driven of of all the things you can blame mccartney for i i would think he's vindicated for the most part by this film but the one thing you could really (laughs) point the finger at him and be like dude this was a terrible idea you needed a vacation all of you should have taken four months off and of course if that had happened then none of this would have worked out the way it did Mm -hmm. so i'm glad it did happen but these guys had literally just finished making a 30-song double album. It was released on at Thanksgiving. So this, these sessions, cameras roll on day one of these sessions, less than six weeks after the release of this double album. During that time, during that interim period, Yoko had a miscarriage five months along. She and John were whacked on drugs to begin with they they had developed she a, introduced heroin to him yes okay they, they had developed a pretty serious heroin and it's very obvious it didn't the, seem serious it seemed like it was there but in the casual, movie there's but, only one time where i thought okay now he needs to watch this shit and when we get there I'll, my, the, in the early sessions in the twickenham sessions john looks pretty out of it yeah and he's he's, sure. he's definitely not more right. so at twickenham than at apple i yeah. think oh for sure but, but so so this this whole thing is like uh there they're grieving. They're, you know, the the white album was the the double album. It was really difficult for them to make. It was the 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 most bickering they had ever done in the studio, and the the hardest. You know, now that Brian Epstein was gone, they no longer had anybody kind of telling them where to be and what to do. It was you know McCartney was suddenly kind of being the the organizer and the the guy getting the the plan together, and. George Martin got frustrated during the White Album and left. Ringo got frustrated during the White Album and left at one point. Paul's whole agenda here was, we need to get back to being a band and we need to play a show. Like, it, it, it giving themselves a two-week window, because initially it was a two-week window <laughs> to try to put this thing together with no songs... Like, it's not like we're going to come out and play, you know, the 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 old ones. We're going to just we're going to write new ones. And John shows up on the first day with nothing. He's got he literally has the chorus of "Don't Let Me Down" in rough form. Right. No verse. No arrangement. Right. Nothing else. Yeah. 
And that, it's like I saw an interview uh, following the release of this thing with Glenn Johns, and he was talking about um, how the concept itself of doing a live show with all new material for a band of that stature was, in fact, a fairly brilliant and completely original concept. I think, to your point, it's just the timing of when it was happening. Yeah, right? it's just my point is just that it's a, a virtually impossible task. To, to succeed with in two weeks' time. With cameras rolling at nine in the morning or yeah. whatever. I mean, that's... An and then and then exacerbated by the fact that you've got one guy who is highly motivated and spewing gold out of every orifice. One guy who is brilliant but completely debilitated and, and unmotivated. And distracted. Or... Yes, very distracted. And one other guy who is very prolific but does not want to be there at all. And who had just, I'm sure we'll get into it later, but had just come back from hanging out with right. a wonderfully supportive right. environment. And, and returning to a, an environment in which he is being treated condescendingly like the annoying little kid brother. You know, right. I mean, it's right. But the I, dynamics at play here are, I mean, it is, yeah. it is high drama. Totally. And then the fourth guy was just kind of asleep half the time. I mean, there were times they showed him when his eyes were closed, like just sitting in a chair. <laughs> he doesn't Well, he seem... was really bumming. Like, like in some of those scenes where, you know, in, in episode two, where, where the, the emotions are at their kind of high point and they, they are at their low point, uh, you know, you, you, Ringo looks like he's, crying a couple yeah. times you know yeah. i mean he's no, for sure. you can tell he's really bummed out but he's always at the ready with the sticks i mean he's just ready to go until like if it's a very tentative kind of loose sketchy concept he'll just kind of be tapping along and then the second it has a little bit of legs he's right there with it and he's taking instruction from paul he's totally being responsive to ideas he he's invested in the music but i think all the personal stuff you see him really stressing out yeah you, you definitely see him affected by what he perceives as the kind of breakdown. Yeah. You know, he, he is deeply Because in between concerned. takes, whenever they're away from playing, he's he can he's still light. He's offering yeah. some levity into the darkness. But whenever he's behind the kit, he, he's not messing around. He's ready to go. Yeah. And I've and I, I continually pointed out, like, he's rock solid throughout. Mm -hmm. You know, he's not a flashy drummer by any means, but he's always... Solid. He he's never faltering back there. He's always just giving them what they want. Absolutely. And when Paul says, "No, do it like this," da 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 pop. You know, don't let me down. He just does it instantly, and then it's there. Yeah. And he's like, and that's like, good idea, Paul. <laughs> you know, Paul really did have a lot of good ideas. Oh my gosh, it was crazy. Okay, so like one of the first things that just blew my mind is that that George brought like some just guys to come hang out the Hari krishnas dude I mean, that's just, what that was so weird <laughs> it's so weird and, they, mean, and the way they the way the way they make the hard day's night quip is really brilliant too because it's yeah. like who's the little old man and paul's like oh he's clean though yeah. like, i thought that was hilarious it's 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 interesting to me as i was watching them thinking what are they thinking as they're sitting there in this moment are they in some sort of blissful transcendental yeah, are state they even paying attention Can because they they're what's going on rocking back yeah. and forth and doing their strange little you know pocket dance or whatever that is <laughs> it's, Meanwhile, it's, george george is so perplexing in that sense because you're like he seems so practical and so deadpan and down to earth and yet he's hanging out with these hari Krishnas. and kind like, of a little Kind of a little bit of a prince, kind of just he seems a little difficult. Like he's definitely difficult at Twickenham because he's 
frustrated. And, yeah. and he thinks the whole thing is insane. Like, I mean, he, he's like, he's like, that the idea of getting everybody on a boat just sounds insane to me. And he's like, who's going to cough up for that? Yeah. Fender won't even give us a free app. Like when he's like, <laughs> how old now George is 25 at this point. Yeah. They, 25. Ringo's so the unbelievable. Ringo is, is the little, old. He is a little brat. I mean, yeah. like there are points in this thing where he's a prissy little brat. That's kind of what, that's a perfect word for it. Um, I Definitely. mean, he's frustrated. But, but, but don't he's... you think that he's the voice of reason a few times? Oh, I mean, for sure. I mean, when they're talking about a Libyan amphitheater and, you know, Michael Lindsay Hogg is just so annoying with his persistence of, oh, what about Libya? <laughs> you know, George... I couldn't get a handle on his accent either. It, it, he's, well, he's, a, he's American born. But his dad was supposedly Orson Welles. Orson Welles. Yeah. yeah, that's insane. Yeah. And it, have, you re- have you read the backstory on him, Chad? Uh, his wait, his his dad actually is he Orson was, his Wells? biological his, father is th- said to be. His mother claimed to have an affair with Orson Wells and told it's Fitzgerald. Has that been, Somebody and that's Fitzgerald. Been confirmed? It's not been confirmed, but he looks like him. Go this look at a, go look at pictures of young Orson Sinatra, Wells. Dylan Farrow yes, type deal. Totally. Yes, totally. And and I mean, it is it is believed Geraldine that uh, Fitzgerald something. Well, but her, the, so she was really good friends with Gloria Vanderbilt. Okay, and then at some point in his life, Michael Lindsay Hogg had an affair with Gloria Vanderbilt. No and way. She, yeah, this, I read all about this. So shit. Anderson Cooper might be related to <laughs> said said she told Michael that his mother had said yes, Orson is his father. Wow. So it's because there's an Orson Welles reference in the yeah, film. Yeah, he's talking about he's talking about when working George with him. quits. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, during that whole wow, that's around nuts, the clubs, man. But, yeah, it's just a another little wrinkle in the story, you know. I love the you know for all the all the bagging that people are doing on Michael Lindsay Hogg, you know, a lot of it is well deserved because he's he's pretty insufferable. Oh, uh, he but, he was annoying right off the bat, yeah, and it was. But I love the establishing shot because you're you're watching this whole Beatles montage, and it's taking you just in in three minutes time. It's taking you through. Hard Day's Night and Help and then, you know, Revolver and Sgt. Pepper and, like, you're getting all that story. And then as soon as they get you to the present, they just show this crystal clear shot of him engulfed in cigar smoke. And that's, like, that is a great establishing shot. And more shot. so than anywhere else in the film, he looks like he's 13 years old. Yeah, His he does. He face is very so boyish. young mm-hmm. and fresh. Mm-hmm. It's very disarming. Yeah. But it, 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 it immediately puts you in it makes you realize oh wow they have really done an incredible job restoring this footage wow dude glenn johns his outfits yeah i i wanted to say george harrison's outfits are are outrageous but glenn's are even more outrageous (laughs) i mean the glasses the just all of it it was just like he must have just I don't know what made him think, I think that he, he must was... have cleaned out the Apple boutique, right? Hadn't it closed by then or <laughs> yeah. just or it was in the process. Of, yeah. Well, he he just seemed as if he had maybe just done somebody's like two or three really amazing albums and he probably had, but I mean, he'd he, just done Zeppelin 1. Yeah. That's a, no no and that's actually a question I wanted to ask you guys. So, Glenn Johns by this point had done what? I know he'd engineered he had, on a lot of stuff. Yes, but, but in terms had, of actual production. Oh, well, I don't think he had done any full on. I don't think he had any sole producer credits. That's my understanding yeah, as but well. But he had just come off of engineering Led Zeppelin 1. And w- had he not worked? He'd worked on a ton of Stone's records in terms yes. of engineering. Yes. yes, and he he was just about to go produce Steve Miller, and he was about to produce Let It Bleed. 
like this was this was kind of the gateway for him. Right. I mean, yeah. as far as as far as, I mean, he was right on the cusp. So my question is, and I'm I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Uh, Glenn Johns is hard to read throughout some of this. Like he either seems really annoyed at one minute, and then like kind of really ex- excited. Like whenever he's sitting there watching Paul doodle on the piano and just spinning out all these wonderful songs, he you would have to be pretty insane not to be impressed by that situation. But then you'll turn around and like he's kind of got this scowl on his face like what the hell's going on in here, which is understandable as well. But like I couldn't help but wonder if he spent this much time with the Stones, this rowdy, greasy bunch of misfits, and now suddenly he's having to sit through Maxwell's Silver Hammer, I, I always kind of am watching for some moment of like, oh, you you guys are supposed to be the greatest band in the world, you know? Like, I just got back from this bluesy Stones brilliance, and now I'm sitting here listening to these twee little ditties. Yeah, but you got to think he had to have been starstruck. You know, even even if even if you've worked with the Stones, even if you've worked with Led Zeppelin, who weren't famous no. at, at the time, you, you've got to be just awestruck by the Beatles because I, that's why I think he showed up like yeah, that kind I'm, of like I'm gonna I'm gonna act like I belong here yeah and yeah. I'm gonna show on the outside and then just kind of fake yeah. it till I make it because right. I mean it's the friggin Beatles yeah. and I but think you're does, right you know but he does seem very enthusiastic a lot of times you see they they show him talking to Ringo and they show him talking to George Martin and you see him kind of seems very engaged and very happy to be there uh-huh. even though what's happening is a mess yeah right but I guess that's it. It's the Glenn Paul dynamic that I kind of watch the most because Paul is the one who's going to throw out some obla di obla da on you or whatever. And yeah. like, if Glenn Johns is going to be like, really, dude? Like, th- this is what you're working on? But I think that I think that with McCartney, it was always like that. For every Maxwell Silver Hammer that he presented, he was going to turn around and present a let it be or a get back, you know, where you're going to be like, okay, for every one of these garbage throwaways, we're going to get two or three other really good songs. So, you know, everybody had to have been. Is Maxwell's in like the top three worst Beatles songs? No, I don't think so at all. I think it's a wonderful arrangement. It's it's just kind of a hokey Great little pop song or whatever, but. But he, I think Glenn Johns does kind of root for Long and Winding Road at some point. He kind of weighs in and yeah. goes, oh, but it's such a great one or something. Like yeah, he kind and, of, and they they talk a little bit about so – they, they actually talk at one point about putting strings on it, which yeah, is funny. Yeah. You know, it's like so imagine, he, he, imagine if it had a sparse string arrangement. He can clearly get down with a quality ballad, which yeah. you wouldn't hear anything like that from the Stones, for example. Right. Right. Well, I don't know. I think the, Stones the Long and Winding some, Road? Well, maybe not that. Maybe not that syrupy. Well, but – yeah. yeah, the Stones have some monster ballads. Sure. Moving on down the road, we're we're How okay. So we're about fifty minutes into this podcast, and we're getting into day two. <laughs> <laughs> oh, have we even gotten? <laughs> we're approaching day two. We're not really. 50 we're going longer than the podcast. I mean, than the the documentary. It yeah. was, we could have just put it on and just made comments yeah, as it played. Yeah, eight hours of eight <laughs> hours of podcast. Uh, you know, I mean. For me, I will say this. I could do without, you know, I've got plenty of criticisms of it. Um, I could do without hours of them goofing off. Like the old covers and songs they used yeah, to play. I mean, I mean, sometimes it's cool. And a lot of times it'll be, you know, it'll be 10 seconds of that, you know, but, but 
constant footage of them goofing off, I'm not as impressed with. What I really like is when you get nitty-gritty conversation or uh, inter-band, per, interpersonal dynamics. For example, uh, when George brings in I, Me, Mine, this is a really revealing scene. He presents it to Paul and Ringo, and he's very relaxed. And he's like talking about how he'd watched the show on the TV. And then, you know, the, the people doing the waltzing, you know, had kind of inspired this idea. And he sings the idea. And Paul and Ringo are both very engaged. John shows up late. And then when he presents it to John, he's suddenly completely different. Like he's super stiff and super nervous. And his voice is like wobbling and warbling. You know, he's like, uh, like he's really nervous presenting I Me Mind to John. And John just sits there and just dismisses it. And he's like, he pats him on the head. Do you see that? Where he like, I didn't know like, that. He pats him on the head and he goes, what's wrong with you? Don't you know we're a rock and roll band? And he's like, gung, 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 gung. You know, he like sits there and kind of just, just, just totally condescending and mocking to George. Yeah. And then George is like, well, I don't care if you don't want it. Yeah. And... Well, and he's also up dancing about the studio instead yeah. of contributing musically, totally. which is a great shot. It is a great shot, but it, but it, but yeah, you're it right. Speaks, he, he, yeah. John refused to, and, and if you well, didn't Lindsay Hogg say something like, "Oh, you should do a waltz or something like well, have them dance"? But that was after John was and Yoko. After they yeah. was after he'd it, seen yeah. them doing it. Yeah, he yeah. was like, "Oh, we should have that since yeah. you're clearly not going to participate." Yeah. Right. But one of the other things I thought was interesting was that you see John make this. He he says, "Don't you know we're a rock and roll band?" And then he kind of gung gung He kind of imitates that shuffly blues yeah. rhythm. And this is before that part was in the song, right? Because the original version that George presented didn't have the "I the... me me mine." Yeah. I'm wondering if that was created to appease John to make John more interested. And yet he still, even when they recorded the song, John didn't participate in the session. Wow, mm-hmm. it's nuts. Yeah. So those those kinds of moments are the things that really. Uh, are revelatory. I, I I think seeing seeing those band dynamics and like the the famous argument between George and Paul, where you know Paul's like, "I'm not trying to get you," and the minute he mentions "Hey Jude," that's when George kind of that that touches the nerve because the famous story is that George wanted to put lead guitar in "Hey Jude" and McCartney said no. It was my understanding <laughs> it was like an answering part. Yeah. So hey Jude, like, that guy, yeah. you know. That's a bad nuts. idea, you know. Yeah. And, and Paul said, "No, we're not doing that." But the second he mentions that, that's what sets George yeah. off to well, I'll play like, whatever you want me to play, or I won't play it. I, I thought it was interesting when he said, "You don't annoy me anymore." Yeah. That was like kind of like I don't. It's basically him saying, I, "You're nothing to me." Yeah, I've, I've just stopped caring what you think, yeah. kind of a thing. But I, th- I think a lot of that was George just being defensive and being frustrated. But he, the great part of that that. For, you know, we've seen that that argument takes place in the film Let It Be. People have seen one side of it forever, right. and the, the 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 deeper context it, it reveals a bit more about it. But I love George's last word that he gets in there that the Let It Be film never showed, which is he goes, "I'll play whatever you want me to play, or I won't play at all. Whatever it is that'll please you, I'll do it." And then there's a silence, and he goes, "But I don't think it." He goes, but I don't think you know what you want. Mm. He says, I don't think you know what that one is yet. Yeah. And that says it all. Because really what McCartney is frustrated by is that they're, they're talking about the song Two of Us. It doesn't sound good. It doesn't sound right because they're going dung 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 dung
Right. The minute they switch to acoustic guitars at Apple a couple weeks later, that song comes together. Right. And there's nothing really different about it other than the fact that suddenly it's acoustic. Yes. George is playing the exact same little sliding bass part that he was playing at Twickenham. And it, I feel like that totally vindicates George because it's like, it was M- McCartney didn't know what he wanted. He had to hear the acoustics, the the Everly Brothers kind of sound, you know, yeah, of that totally. song, for it to suddenly make sense and be like, ah, oh, this is what it was missing all along. We were trying to play it as a rock song. It shouldn't be a rock. Would song. you not agree that that moment seems to uh, sort of represent a larger issue that seems to be at the heart of uh, most of the conflicts here? Is that it's a difference in uh, approach to the creative process. George is basically saying. Let's keep playing it until we get there. And Paul's saying, well, we could do that, but we're just wasting time because we're just running through the thing over and over. Let's talk about it first, establish our ideas. I mean, they're both kind of just coming at it from different sides and not communicating well what they really want. Yeah. I mean, if, if you listen to what they're actually saying, George, what he's saying is like, well, I can't figure out what I'm supposed to play until we keep doing it to see what works. And Paul's saying, well, yeah, but we're just doing it endlessly. We're wasting time. So in a way, both approaches could work. They're just not meeting in the middle. Yeah, it's the communication. It's That's that's the deal. It's a breakdown. And, because... re- and really the person being the most frustrated there is Paul. Because if you watch his body language, he's the one who flops down. You know, I made, I made a joke to you. I was like, he flops down in the... Oh, in the, the chair, and he, yeah. he kind of sits back, and he starts playing with his hair, and you can see that he he's gets really, up at one point, yeah. wanders around, and he says, he even says, "And I can't do it on film. Yeah, I can't, yeah. I can't do this on film." And it's like, idiot, this was your idea. Yeah. Well, because who knows what he would have been saying without the cameras? Right, like it, right. uh, that that is some insight there too. All of this makes you wish they had cameras for Revolver and for Pepper and yeah. Let It Be and I mean I mean and, uh, and for Abbey Road. Well, let me Obviously, ask you this real be, quick. Sorry. Since we were talking earlier about the uh, the goofing off and the going into the oldies and stuff, if the whole concept was to get back to their roots, I mean like one could argue, I mean the bulk of the songs that they're pulling from in their goofing off moments, blowing off steam are from like their early part of the 60s, late 50s. It's it's all very old school like songs that they maybe started off with and you're right there's a bit much of that but i mean can you imagine them pulling out and just kind of jamming during like the like we see here during the pepper sessions or oh no i feel like i I feel like that stuff was just so much more focused like it was uh, it was every day when and i think it was like this even through the white album like they would come in with a song a day, and and they would spend hours and hours in forty six takes. So the just getting happiness is a warm gun up to par, and then they would record it. And once they finally got a basic track they were happy with, then they would stack. Right, you know, and that formula was just completely disrupted by this process because it was like, oh well, let's figure out how to play it with no overdubs. And you can see George Martin is just losing his mind because yeah. he's like. This is a great song. Let me produce it. But they're yeah. like, no. <laughs> well, is there any truth to the fact that uh, that maybe part of George's process, the way he does it, the way he likes, is because he's not as proficient at the guitar as George is at the bass and piano and drums? And uh, just, as Paul is, you mean? I mean yeah, I yeah. mean, Paul. Because I, I'm wondering well, if that he, is part of why he likes to go that route. He does talk about that at one point, because there's a whole he thing says, where he, he talks about Clapton. He compares himself to Clapton. Yeah, and yeah. He's, like, he's like, I can't play like that. And uh, 
one thing that, you know, anybody who, I, I guess you don't even have to be a guitar player to notice that there are a lot of things George plays in these improv sessions that sound like shit. Mm-hmm. And, and, and you think, okay, well, maybe he's right. Maybe he's not a great improviser. He has to sit and work on his stuff. But I, I think that this has long been fascinating to me, and this is a good place to bring it up. Sometime between 1969 and 1970, George became a masterful slide guitar player, like to the point where he developed a unique signature sound that is immediately identifiable that puts him up there in the the, the upper echelon of slide guitar players. Mm-hmm. But never at any point in the Beatles do you see him doing this. Ever would you not argue though that even at his uh, as his slide mastery is developing, he's still methodically working out very specific parts. Absolutely, and some of his solos on Beatles songs are great, but they are clearly not improvised. They're, no, no, they're, no, they're, they're, I, they're meticulously crafted. I just think even once he went to slide, he's still sitting there very carefully picking out every single note. Yes, I think that's correct. He's I don't composing think he was... solos. Yes. So whenever he sits down at some point during this thing and watch and and works you through uh, Old Brown Shoe, and he's sitting there at the piano. He's literally singing his solo, like note for note, almost exactly yeah. as it appears yeah. on the record. Yeah. So he's written he's, yeah, he hears his, it in his head. guitar solo every note before he even shows you the song. Yeah. That to me speaks volumes. Absolutely. It's not like he's just riffing. No, I think it's just. I think what his point is is that he's just not. He's not Clapton. He's not an improviser. He's not a shredder. He is a. He's a different kind of player. Right. But but just finishing my point, I I think that. At this point, George was really feeling insecure about that. I th- you know, he brings it up. He's talking about, I'm not as good as Eric. I think this is where he started to really think, I need to do something to step up my game as a guitarist. Mm-hmm. And that's maybe where, because when he starts doing All Things Must Pass, the, the, the album sessions, a year later, he's suddenly a killer slide player. So this didn't just happen overnight. He had to have started working on this at some point in 1969 is is what i'm thinking is is that maybe these sessions these get back sessions gave him a bit of a a kick to well, say you know what i i'm writing good songs i really need to work on my playing more and look at how much he's kind of leaning into the leslie effect the wawa the wawa yeah Throughout the course of these sessions, I mean, give me a Wawa. We are talking about like <laughs> essentially a month or whatever, but like yeah. it almost does. I think to your point, seem like he's trying to establish or identify a signature sound. Yeah, he's trying to find he's, something. He's leaning on it so much. Yeah. He's throwing it into everything. Yeah. And you had to wonder if if there's any evidence out there of maybe McCartney at some point going, lose the Wawa, dude. Because never does the Wawa sound good on any of those Twickenham sessions. It's like, yeah. dude, you're killing me. Real quick, before we move on, there was one point in here, and you, you have it written, but one of the more chilling moments that I I've thought, I rewound it several times, this is right before the I Me Mind thing, where they're sitting there, and is it George who says, well, maybe we should just get a divorce? Oh, that scene is amazing. And cause... so I think it's George, because then John answers, who'll have the children then? And the first time he said that, I thought, oh, he's just making a laugh. Like, he's just like, that's what you say when someone mentions divorce. It's like, who gets the children? But then Paul's response instantly is Dick James, who was their publisher. He's talking about the songs. And the songs are the children. And I don't know why, but that struck me so uh, hardcore. I was like, man, 
that's really heavy. Yeah. yeah. And but 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 that's the first time in the film, at least, that they directly address a breakup. Yeah. You know, that's and 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 it's and and George says, you know, the Beatles have been in the doldrums for at least the last year. Yeah. And he's referencing, you know, man, ever since we went to India. Which we'll come back to the India thing too, yeah. because the the conversation they later have about India is fascinating. There's a lot of a lot of interesting uh, subtext there. Well, isn't it John when, when John comes in and they're working on "I Me Mine"? Is that when he says, "Oh, is this a Harris song?" Yeah, is this a Harris song? Or it might it might have been "All Things Must Pass." Okay, maybe you're right. Yeah, but which I is like... amazing to me that he could present a song as beautiful as that and have it just kind of be a fart in the wind of those guys. You know, like. I mean, you see them trying to work on it, but they're not really getting anywhere. And, it's, and I feel like uh, songs, when you're presented new songs, it, we've all been in bands where you're presented new songs, and it's like wine. It has a lot to do with your mindset, your environment, if your your willingness to even give it a chance, because I feel like that has a lot to do with, because that was just a total fluke that they weren't yeah. paying attention to and that it, song. It's really hard to present a song in front of people. Yeah, you know? I mean... So I, I guess that's why we make demos and send them, but then even then, it's like just trying to get somebody I, I want to give them demo. the benefit <laughs> of the doubt on that one, that that was just... It had everything to do with their mindset that day, at What's that moment. What's interesting is thumbing through that that Get Bat, Get Bat book, uh, there's a... John is the one who keeps pushing to reattempt All Things Must Pass. Really? Mm-hmm. Like over and over, like they keep veering into other stuff, and John will be like, "No, let's go back to this one," and then, and then he gets over on the organ and kind of sleeps his way through it. Yeah. I mean, it's a and the the ultimate problem is that there's no ending; they don't know how to end it, and so it just keeps collapsing yeah. to the point where they all just get worn out on it. I think, but they uh, there's a take I think in the film where the the harmonies are pretty tight. Yeah, you can see them starting to get somewhere with it. Yeah, yeah. One of the under rated stars of the first episode was the zit <laughs> ringo's ringo's chin zit oh my <laughs> i noticed that and went i was like at first i was like is that a mole that i've never noticed and i was like no that is a zit and it was <laughs> yes it was it had its own weather system right uh so I, you said something earlier that we were talking about them goofing off. Mm -hmm. And this just reminded me of a, of a point I wanted to make. Um, talking about them playing oldies. One thing that really frustrates me watching this is that they talk about old songs. And George at one point goes, oh, you know what would be a good one is... Da -da 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 -da. And then they sit for like 10 seconds and go... When I'm walking beside, and it's every little thing, and I'm like, oh man! And then later they goof off with "Please Please Me," they goof off with "Love Me Do," mm -hmm. they goof off with "Help." George, uh, John even says at one point, "I've been doing help well lately," meaning he's sitting on his couch singing it. And I want to hear them do that shit for real. Like I, I want to be like, no man, like really for real, try to play help. Like try to relearn it. Yeah. Because because all you get is ten seconds of them dicking with it. Yeah. And I'm like, no. I think it would have been really cool if they had actually taken the time to say, yeah, let's, yeah, we're gonna do some new songs, but let's learn five or six of our classics. And and I wish that that had been explored more. Well, do you think that that also speaks to what you're describing? Obviously, it would be pretty amazing if we saw a spirited actual start to finish take of help for yes. example rather with than, them all full-throated yeah. but do you think that the fact that we're not seeing that maybe speaks to 
Paul's point about passé chords and and really uh, maybe in a larger sense looking at the musical landscape that they were currently in and maybe the conscious or unconscious desire to find their place in it yeah so they're listening to canned heat they're listening to the band they're listening to whatever dylan's doing so the idea of going back and doing a version of please please me seems pretty twee but they'll sit and goof on a whole lot of shaking going on for two hours so it's a little weird it's like where do you think they're at mentally well and i and i'm just thinking about it in terms of the calm uh the the concept of the sessions in the first place because this whole thing is we're going to get back we're going to be a live band again you feel like there's some sort of implication there that maybe they are going to do some oldies maybe they are going to play a few old songs uh whether it be old covers or some of their own things but yeah the so so then when it's oh we're going to get back to being a live band again but it's going to be all new material it's like wow that's a that's a strange juxtaposition of ideas you know yeah, for sure. I just uh... we should definitely talk about George leaving because that's the 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 climax and culmination of everything in episode one is George walking out, which is just such a strange thing. So you you get that whole the the Friday the tenth, which then leads into you know a weekend where we don't get to see everything that's happening. And so on that Friday, you see George slowly starting to simmer that whole, that whole morning. And I, and I think it starts with Paul saying that that chord is passe Mm. because they're working on get back and they're sitting there and, and Paul. So, so the way, the way it's framed in the film is Paul and John are, are really like, they're kind of standing up face to face, nose to nose. Paul is saying, no, no, John, you play lead guitar play, you know, and he's giving John some ideas and John's stepping forward to play lead guitar. Yeah. What would surely be the first time in a long time. Like, Mm -hmm. Hey, I'm going to be the guy on this song. And George doesn't really seem annoyed by that yet. But then when he plays the chord and then Paul immediately turns to him and says, don't play that chord. Right. We've done that before. That's passe. George is like, no, it's not. It's just, it's a, just a chord. It's just a chord, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like... It's... What makes it passe, right? Well, we've used it before, and he's talking about... I almost didn't mean... Is he saying we used it before? Yes. Is he saying like, he's, that's he's just talk... an old, old-fashioned chord? He's talking about the seven-sharp nine chord that <clears> is the <throat> Hendrix chord that, that defines Taxman. It defines Sergeant Pepper. They definitely had used it before, but like George says, it's just a chord. Yeah, <laughs> you know, maybe maybe it's too immediately identifiable with Taxman, and mm-hmm. then subsequently Hendrix, Hendrix made great use of it. You know, it's like okay, maybe, I mean, maybe Paul's right, but the way he says it to George, that's that's the beginning of you can see George starting to just stew. Yeah, he's sitting over there, and they keep, and this might just be clever editing, which I'll get to that too, but. At that point, you just see George fuming. John and Paul are face to face. They're working. They're singing together. John is playing lead guitar. George is just like, "Fuck this." I feel like during there was like a a good twenty or thirty minutes in that, or maybe it was felt like twenty or thirty, but it was just this whole period of time where it did look like they were ignoring George, like they were pretending he wasn't there. Yes, 
You could definitely see it. So here's what I want to bring up, which is a little frustrating. But uh, So Chad knows the book I'm about to speak of. This book I'm holding is called Get Back, an unauthorized chronicle of the Beatles' Let It Be Disaster, which is, it was published in the mid-90s, and it is long out of print. And I found it in a bookstore randomly at some point in the 90s, and being a Beatles fanatic who wanted to know everything about the Let It Be sessions and having so little information... I, of course, bought it. And what it is, is a, I mean, it is a day-to-day, minute-by-minute, song-by-song. It is, I mean, it's like, reading it is like watching paint dry. But it's very revealing. And what it actually tells us, because these guys had access to tons of hours of audio tape, even though it's not complete. There are things that are in this film that don't seem to be in this book. So it tells you that... Maybe more footage, maybe more tapes were discovered after, or, or than, than they were right. allowed to hear. Mm-hmm. There's a disclaimer at the top of this book where it says, we didn't get to hear everything, but right. we got to hear a lot. Right. The George walkout actually happens after they go to lunch. So when you see it in the film, it makes it appear that George just gets fed up with them working on that song, and he gets up and says, I'll be leaving now. But actually what they do is they break for lunch, and then when they come back from lunch, George walks in and walks up to John and says, I'll be leaving now. So, I'll be the, leaving the band yes, now. The, 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 the belief is that something happened during lunch that was the final straw for George. And it has long been uh, speculated that it was a conflict between John and George over Yoko. Huh. And, and so... Unfortunately, we don't get that from the film. Is this when she sat on his amp and ate his biscuits? Yeah, there, 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 there have been Really? Because various... I heard that comment about sitting on an amp, and yeah. I, I well, never Paul understood. Paul says that later. Okay. Well, so in this book, it talks about the meeting that happened the, on the Sunday at yeah. Ringo's house after right. George left. Yeah. And the conversation that happens Monday morning when only Ringo and Paul show up, and, and Paul looks really like he's at his low point there. There, That conversation goes on for a long time, and we only see little bits and pieces of it in the film. Right, right. You know? Right. And there's a lot of talk about Yoko and that conversation. I think in this film, Yoko is somewhat vindicated because of the way it's edited. You see her not intruding, but what I think really happened was that she was speaking for John. And it's not Yoko's fault, it's John's fault. But that was what George was really pissed about. He was really sick of trying to communicate with John, but having to speak to Yoko because John would refuse to communicate. And so that was why he walked out of the, the session, but also why he walked out of the meeting at Ringo's house. Okay. Um, but you think that that was, you think Yoko was uh, the intermediary for John Wilder actually working on music? Because that would be a pretty. Uh, masterful editing thing to never see any of that. I mean, I never see her chime in. Yeah, I'm a little confused. You're saying that, was he like so smacked out that he couldn't talk? No, he just had gotten to a point that it, it, John and Yoko apparently had this kind of belief that if you had a heightened awareness, then you didn't need to verbally communicate certain things. Mm -hmm. There's a lot, I think there's a lot of 
subtext with John's mental state that the film doesn't show you. And maybe I'm going too far by bringing these other books that I've well, read this, this into is it. Good. I mean, yeah, I think no, but but it's just one of my only things that that there's a little frustrating. It's like, dude, I want to see the outtakes that they didn't show us. Because right. what you're what you're saying makes sense if it's like while they're sitting there trying to have a lunch, and George is trying to communicate with John. Yes, I'm not and, talking about it in a musical context. Okay. I'm talking about when George is trying to communicate with John about band issues. One of, one of the things that the book says, and you hear Paul mention it and Linda mention it in that Monday morning conversation, they say, well, Yoko kept speaking for John, mm. and then George got up and left. Right. Like you hear you hear that. that yeah. Linda says, Yoko kept speaking for John, That's right. and George... Set him out. Yeah, yeah. I, but I just to be clear, I, I Yoko's presence during the actual music making process, while a bit distracting, doesn't seem to fit with the narrative that has long been held that she's like dominating the sessions right, right. with dialogue. Yeah, you, you, you definitely don't offer musical and, ideas. And most of the time she looks bored. Most yeah, of the time totally. she looks like she doesn't want to she's be She's reading there. letters. Well, she's knitting. Yeah. There was a, uh, some, I don't remember who said it, but maybe it was Rolling Stone. There was a review I read where the guy was like, not only does it dispel the rumors that she was the reason that they broke up, it also gives you a... <laughs> Newfound respect for her for actually sitting through all of yeah, that. The patience. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I, I, that's so true because it does appear that she's just a fly on the wall most of the time, except yeah. when she gets a microphone in her hand. But oh as my symbiotic God. as John and Yoko seem to be, are there not moments where, like, it seems like even he's like, because she's picking at him constantly, like a little, yeah, like a chimp or something. She's yeah. just n- nitpicking or, or lighting his cigarettes or handing him little things. There's, then there's the, the, the the scene where she gives him a big smooch. And it's like this extended open mouth kiss while yeah. he's like and literally he's, he's playing. He's like, hey, there's a away. camera on he's us. He's pulling away trying to play well, guitar. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a little embarrassing. Well, there's a, there's another scene where she's like on the microphone and he's having a conversation with Michael Lindsay Hogg. And she's going, John! Yeah. John! And he's like, yes, dear. Yeah. You know, and he's like, you can tell he's kind of like, <laughs> enough. It's, yeah. it's nuts. She's but, competing for his attention. You know? But mm-hmm. if, like, if, if, uh, if George had a problem with her she could have just as easily said well dude i mean you brought two harry krishnas i mean what what's the deal like <laughs> you, you brought two male yokos but they're not intruding and they're not speaking we don't know John. that yeah, they're not, yeah he's not he's not trying to include them in the band meetings one thing that's uh, you know there, it's I, equally weird though i mean yeah it, it may be weirder because at least john that's his girlfriend these who are these two strangers yeah but they're but but again in, they're just kind Indians. of off in the corner yeah. I, I think one of the things this book talks about and what they do talk about in the film in that scene, but you kind of have to rewind it and watch it to catch every bit of dialogue is that George wanted to have a meeting between the four Beatles. And, and he was very much, I think, wanting to say, we need to talk without her speaking for you. Totally. And, and John's refusal to do that to John's refusal to have Yoko not be there. It definitely is disruptive to a band dynamic. I for mean, sure. I think the three of us know from being in bands for years that we would never do that. Never. I would never bring my wife and be like, my wife's going to sit here next to me the entire time, and whenever whenever we're having a discussion of our business, she's going to interject. You know, I mean, yeah. that's, you know. We might be better off if she chimed in every now and then. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> 
So there's one scene that I, that one of my very favorite scenes in episode one is where you see uh, Dennis O'Dell and Michael Lindsay Hogg come over with the kind of blueprint uh, drawing of what they imagine the stage show being. And Paul's sitting at the piano and he goes, oh yeah, it looks like Around the Beatles, which is a thing that they did back in 64 as a television show. And Paul's sitting there, and he's clearly distracted because he's wanting to play the piano. And 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 he's the the quip he makes is hilarious. He goes, "Go show John and Yoko they're the artists." I he's remember like, that. Yes, they're artists. Yeah. And he really, I, he's being snarky, but I think what it is is he's saying, "Fuck off! I'm trying to write a song here." And, and, and then you see them. There's go like over. three conversations yes, going. Three on. conversations going on, and in the background, he's writing, "Let it be." It is. Unbelievable. It's awesome. And and that might also be masterful editing, but if that's really what's happening, that is some of the best fly on the wall shit ever. What was the version of Let It Be that you first hear? I, I feel like it was on some bootleg or something. It's released. okay. It's it's on the White Album sessions, but it's like real funky. Well, it's he's sing he's singing he's saying Brother Malcolm mm -hmm. comes to me something right something Let It Be. But but the assassination, he does, right? Or yes, right around then. But yeah. he does not have the chord structure. Right. Like, it's like a single yes, chord and jam. Yes, it's a one chord thing. He's just playing an A and Ringo's going gong rong rong. Mm -hmm. They're just grooving in halftime. And he's go and he clearly has the lines, you know, speaking words of wisdom, let it be. Right. He's got that idea in his head, but he does not have the chord structure. Mm -hmm. So what you're seeing in that if what we see on film is to be believed. What we're hearing is him finally putting the two pieces together. Mm. He comes up with a chord structure that makes sense. Yeah, and melody to match. Yes. So he's got that idea. Because <clears throat> that, to me, is a pretty stark, uh, interesting transformation from the single chord, yeah. funky, squawky jam version to this stately ballad is really quite well, I think he I think he knew that that was a really powerful lyrical concept. Like, yeah. hey, man, if I can turn this into something, it'll be great. And he just had to wait for the moment to present itself musically. And then there it is. They're all ignoring him, and he's sitting there writing this. The Glenn Johns is the only one paying attention to him. Like, you see him sitting, yeah. like, playing the chords and kind of talking to Glenn. Like, yeah. what do you think of this? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Amazing. It definitely... And, and of course, we haven't talked about this yet, but the footage of him pulling Git back out of thin air is just amazing. It really is. I, I've heard people say, well, what's the big deal? It's not that great a song. I'm like, well, first of all, it's Get Back. Give me a fucking break. I, honest to God, I've been one of those people that okay. has never really gotten the, the, the hubbub about that song, but this changed my mind, and it really is because I finally can see what Ringo is actually playing. Yeah. That little beat that he's doing well, is so... It's a, it's Unorthodox a great track. It's simple. The it's lyrics just like are a hilarious. I mean, pony kind yeah, of deal. But the lyrics are hilarious. Transvestite and the fact that they had this whole Pakistani version, you know. But I think what's so remarkable about that get back scene is it's the first time you. It's the fact that cameras are rolling. You know, it's not. It's not that get back is the be all end all song. It's that you're literally watching the first moment that an idea for a song and that's how songwriting is mm -hmm. like you know we as, as people who write songs we can all tell you yeah sometimes they come to you in five minutes and they're fully formed sometimes it takes months to write like with george 
doing something. Well, I've been I've been working on this one for months, and I can't get past this first yeah. this first line. But just seeing him do that in real time, and and because you know he's fishing around, they're yawning, they're totally bored, and then he kind of hits on a hint of the melody. Then the next pass, he actually has the melody. I mean, it's like the full melody. And then you see Ringo kind of perk up, and then George kind of perks up, and Ringo starts clapping, and it's like, that is magic. It's funny, too, like songwriters like you guys, uh, because I'm not a songwriter, but the way that you, when you start to like fill in, you've got your part coming out, and then you are trying to like make up some words just on the fly just to start. And it's funny how you come back, I'm sure you come back to a lot of the same phrases like I bet some bands always start with she this she that. I do it all the time. I say anytime I write a song, I use the word waiting over and over and over. So that's I always the thing. Have waiting. It, it, I'm it's, waiting. I, I wonder how he came on or he came on to those words. Like are those words yeah. that he commonly used? Surely not. Well, I think that some I think of just were... the words get back to where you once belonged. I think that was kind of an overarching. V- concept for the sessions you know and and maybe he had that in his head kind of like let it be Mm -hmm. like maybe he maybe he was like i've got this line get back right can i how can i you know but i'm just speculating absolutely that's that was my take from that is like you're seeing him apply his sort of makeshift placeholder words yeah well real quick to your point i think that the magic of that moment is Undoubtedly, the fact that we're witnessing it. Yeah. That's the thing. Witnessing the first moment. But, yes. but in terms of the actual process of what he's actually doing, I would find that less surprising in a larger sense because of how creatively fertile he is during this period and how, uh, you know, pretty much any great songwriter will say that when these moments occur and you're like, the song is presenting itself that you really sort of are this vessel like Dylan, uh, Neil Young, Randy, New, all these guys will Paul say, Simon. Paul Simon will say like, I don't really know who's writing this sometimes. Yeah, it's just there. And I'm somehow, so as long as your I'm mind conduit, and you your, know? yeah, your, 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 your whole vibe is open to that, that, uh, <clears throat> channeling or whatever you call it. Then it's like you don't. I don't know that Paul McCartney could even sit down and say like, "Where did that thing come from?" It's just it was he was there in the moment, and it was. I think it came from wanting a rock and roll song because right. I think they were they had been saying you you hear them saying in those first couple of days, "I've got a bunch of slow ones." Well, I've got a bunch of slow ones too. Yeah, you know, in oh, the let a it, rock and roll band in, in, yeah. the, in the Let It Be film, uh, they don't show it in in this and get back but in let it be they show john presenting dig a pony mm-hmm. and he's just and even he's he's just like uh is anybody got a fast one yeah you know like yeah so i think paul was coming into it with like i need to write a single i need there needs to be a you know what john called a pot boiler mm-hmm. there needs to be a a kick a, a kick do you uh, do, you, do you, and i think we talked about this before did you catch uh, just a, sn- a snatch of a uh, get up and go Oh, the, absolutely. Absolutely. Get up and go. Yeah. It's like it's before he finds the melody. <laughs> yes. One of the things he does is he, it's like, and I, that's that, there's no way they had access to no, those tapes. But that's just that's just this cosmic. <laughs> I thought that was so bit. funny. I, I love uh, you know, Tom, to your point about the the lyrics and the placeholders and them trying to kind of work their way through. Get back is a great example of a song where some lines were kind of there from the beginning and then others 
they couldn't find. You know, the sweet Loretta Marsh, sweet Loretta yeah. Marvin, sweet. What's and, JoJo's last name? Yeah, yeah. And and the Tucson switching yeah, it to Tucson. The Tucson thing. I love that because you see them. You see John and Paul kind of again just face to face working on it, and he's going oh, Northern Arizona, something Arizona, and then and John's kind of looking down, and then the minute he goes Tucson, John's head pops up, and, and it show it's a really cool yeah. thing, and, and he goes that's too. Tucson in Arizona. Oh, and you know, you see John just instantly say, "Yes, that's the one." Yeah, no, yeah. that's, was that's a really cool moment. You know. Um. So, what is this? You've got this in your notes. What is the backseat backseat chords deal? What- oh, okay. Well, my my very very favorite Paul McCartney solo song is called "The Backseat of My Car," and there's a great scene in one of the morning sessions where he's playing it on the piano. Um. And he just he goes he goes oh yeah here's one I just wrote this morning and he sits down and does the back and I was like just <laughs> falling all over myself when he does that that's awesome but one thing I noticed is that when Ringo does his tap dancing thing you remember where it shows Ringo tap dancing yes the chords that Pat Paul plays underneath it um, can I open the piano for a second yeah for sure Paul does this while Ringo is tap dancing he goes. Those are the chords he's playing. Those are the chords in the backseat of my car. Yeah, that's so whatever, awesome. So whatever that song was that he was playing for Ringo, either that was the seed of his idea for backseat of my car, or maybe it was an existing song that he was like, I need to cop those two chords. Definitely. Because because that's definitely, I noticed it when Ringo's tap dancing. I was like, those are the opening chords of backseat of my car. That's amazing. And then you see him a day later presenting backseat of my car, and I'm like... <laughs> That th- those are the kinds of things that I will geek out over all day long. Another one is uh, when he presents "Carry That Weight." He mm. he's talking about it being a Ringo vehicle, you know. Oh, it's it's one for you, Ringo, and he's you know, boy, and it's it's this kind of super hokey boy. You're gonna carry that weight, and then he's he presents it like a hokey country western kind of a song country western like, thing with with what with, does he say with you know what what like common people deal with yeah, or yeah. something common got problems. too drunk last night and the wife yeah. is it you know and then but um bum bum boy yeah you know when you hear it presented like that and realize that it was always intended to be a Ringo song. It makes so much sense now that you hear Ringo's voice so prominently on the Abbey Road version. Yeah. Right. But once Paul, I guess once they got down to really arranging it, it became a much more melancholy thing. And then Paul's like, I'll take the bridge. Yeah. You know, you know I never give you my pillow. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, they're not going to have Ringo sing that part. Yeah. But uh, but I thought that was cool because then it, it, it makes sense why Ringo's voice is so prominent on that song. It though. makes you wonder, though, did he ever actually write verses for that? Yeah. Come- uh, maybe he, maybe he wisely realized it was a, a good chorus and a bad, <laughs> but a bad overall yeah. concept. Mm-hmm. All right, let's talk about the moment there where uh, I'm pretty sure this is all the same thing. Where there, there was they're all sitting in these directors' chairs, kind of in like a crescent, and they the Peter the Peter Sellers, Sellers yes. comes in, and but That's there's the like, most awkward scene in the entire. So like, there are two things that struck me. One is before John got there. Uh, I think maybe Ringo was talking about how hungover he was or something. And uh, somebody muttered, I want to say Paul said something, uh, like, take better care of yourself. And I think Ringo agreed. And somebody said, Ringo ever, Eric never. Do you remember that? Yeah, Paul says it. Yeah, and it's, like, really crazy because he's basically, like, be like Ringo, 
never like Eric. I guess it was reference to his heroin addiction at the time. Yeah, which was which was really, I mean, maybe not maybe known to them, but not known to the public. You know, right? Not you know that like, was kind of pr- that was pretty poignant. I think you know it's funny how Clapton comes up so many times. Yeah. Uh, in conversation, but uh, I also noticed we should talk at some point about the wives. But man, where's Patty? How come Patty's never there? She only shows up the one time. You yeah. Know? Well, she's probably busy painting the house or getting uh-huh. things seeing together, Eric. You know. <laughs> oh well, would that? Uh, what's the official timeline on that? Uh, when did that start? Well, I think that by that, that was... point, Eric had started to develop his infatuation. But uh, whether or not they had <clears throat> consummated anything is open to. Yeah, I kind of thought that happened later. Well. It's like all things must pass. Yeah, it, it is. I think yeah. that's when it kind of reaches its boiling point. But. So, yes, Peter Sellers comes yeah, in. Yeah, let's talk about that. Yeah, <laughs> Peter comes in, and uh, what, did he get there before John and Yoko? Well, again. I can't remember. No. No, because John's John makes okay, so him this very is like, uncomfortable. This is the first time that it is obvious to anyone that he is high on something because he's not being serious he's doing characters he's looking at the camera all weird and paul is so annoyed very annoyed paul paul keeps saying stuff to him like aimlessly wandering in the canyons of your mind is very unswinging and john just keeps responding with when you're near me i feel happy inside i can't hide i can't He, he just keeps responding with old beatles lyrics and then paul's like what we need is a schedule, like a serious program of work. And John just keeps responding with, when I was younger, so much younger than today. I never, it, and, and you see Paul is yeah. really, really frustrated yes, with John. For sure. There's a scene before Sellers comes in in the film where I believe there's a subtitle that says uh, John is currently at another part of the place. Doing an interview. Doing an interview. Yeah. And then it's followed by this scene later on where I guess Ringo's saying he's not feeling well. And Lennon says, oh, yeah, you know, I lost, I lost, I had to up Chuck later, earlier today. I forget how he puts it. But like that interview, he left that interview to go throw up through his throes of heroin. Yeah. So, I mean, he is like messed up. Well, and they they even address it at one point because he says, well, what's going on, John? And he says, oh, I'm just not taking good care of my body. I, I was up last night stoned. And then McCartney goes, do we really have to do this on film, Mr. Lennon? Yeah. You know, like Paul is not having it. And George Martin is super. I mean, we could talk for an hour yeah. about George Martin's. But Peter Sellers, is he not notoriously uncomfortable in life? I think that's well documented. Yeah, like I'd, I'd In heard social that, yeah. settings, he is notoriously uh, uncomfortable. Pleasant. He looks com- uncomfortable. Well, he doesn't look unpleasant. He just looks like he's miserably uncomfortable. Like he's so he, he does not. Well, I made there. the point at one point with you guys with the big mic and everybody saying like, "Where are the tables in this place? Nobody has a table, <laughs> and everyone's having Every- to lean over for the ashtray. Their food, plates of food, tea, everything's just laying around on the floor. On or on the amps. I mean, yes. it's a lot of toast. But especially whenever they're in the so director's chairs. Yeah. They're like everyone's leaning over to like get their little cup of tea. It's like and they're drinking the whole time. And they're you all, always want to be like, what time of day is this? They're kind of scroungy. And- I mean, consider what was going on. I mean, I think I might want to. At that point, I'd probably be like, yeah. give me, give me some whiskey. But for yeah. someone like Peter Sellers, who's already kind of a nervous Nelly in in social situations, to walk into this sort of scroungy, weird, giant studio with these. Dirty old hippies. I mean, that had to have been a strange. He got out of there pretty quick. It looked yeah. like. Yeah. He was 
most definitely. He, he, I'm about to be paged. Yeah. <laughs> and John is John keeps making comments like he's like, don't leave your needles lying around. Like he's, you can see that he's kind of poking at Sellers a little bit. I think he's yeah. just having fun. But like Peter Sellers is like, I am not going to hang out yeah. and, and be a part of this. Wow. And he's just like, what? What are you guys doing? I wonder if there's a if everyone if anyone ever took an account of what hit like his. Uh, perspective of that like if he was ever interviewed and he told somebody or yeah. wrote wrote down what he just went through i'm sure he probably had some choice comments oh yeah the scenes that'd be him. interesting <laughs> one thing about that scene that that i find fascinating is that throughout the first three quarters of it lennon is he's so his the the way he's responding to paul and George Martin and anybody else and, and Michael Lindsay Hogg. It's just such it's so defensive. Like you can tell that he's just skirting ever really communicating with anybody, defense mechanisms. But then at some point when he starts kind of just riffing, just just being funny, he just keeps going and going and he's saying just this outrageously funny stuff. And he wins them over. Yeah. Like at one point, just by being incredibly funny, yeah. they all start just cracking up like, he still got it. Yeah. You know what? I mean, he is incredibly funny. Definitely. Even when he's at his most annoying, and you can tell that they're all just, they're at their wits end with him. He's still got them in stitches because they're just like, there's like, man, I feel like a lot funny. of that is lost in translation because a lot of his pop culture references, like, I Hortry and the Deaf Aids or whatever the yeah. fuck that is. He says he it, it, that's it. We're not English, so a lot of that I think is lost on Americans. Yeah. It like, certainly is lost on me. I bet it would be funnier if I knew what the hell he was even referencing half the time. But yeah. you're right, he's funny. I love it whenever he's like, and now, ladies and gentlemen, your host for this evening. Yeah, yeah. he keeps doing that. No, yeah, like, re re rehearsing that for the circus, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, let's. You want to talk about Mal real fast? Oh, yeah, let's talk about sweet Mal. Mal. Sweet Mal. Just seeing him so well represented in this film just warms my heart. Every every time the camera catches him, he's it's always in a very supportive, loving, uh, loyal, nurturing mode. And um, <clears throat> I did a little digging on him post this era where he's he's just with him every step of the way. I didn't realize that uh, he uh, <clears throat> was he the only one that went with Paul whenever Paul did his fanciful fool on the hill, on the hill thing. thing. Yeah, yeah. And I think it was that he, he filmed it, right? Yeah. Okay, yeah, and then like it was something like following immediately following that filming, Paul said, "Okay, well, I'm going to go traipse around Greece for a couple of weeks, but I want you to meet me under this clock in France, like at three o'clock a month from now or whatever." And sure enough, when Paul McCartney shows up, there's Mal Evans just leaning against a mailbox yeah. or whatever, waiting for him. That's awesome. And whenever George went to uh, San Francisco, Mal was his handler. Yeah. And just all of these key moments to where, like seeing him play the anvil on uh, Maxwell's Silver Hammer with that big dopey childlike grin yeah. on his face. Yeah, he just... really does look like, yeah, like he's just in hog heaven, you know? Totally. And, I mean, how... It, okay, so... Just to your point about Mal always doing whatever their whatever their bidding might be, he's like Paul gets up and he's like, "Oh yeah," they're all walking out, and Paul's like, "Oh yeah, Mal, uh, we're gonna need a hammer and an anvil." And you see Mal stop dead in his tracks and go, "What? What the fuck?" Yeah. And then he kind of turns around and he's like, 
okay. Like, and next thing he's got the Well, how about whenever he's asking for their lunch order, and Lennon's like, oh, I'll take a sparrow on toast. Yeah, sparrow on toast. You know, <laughs> a, a sock full of elephant dung, whatever. It's like, he's just rolling with it. And uh, But the, the Mal, his contribution in writing the lyrics down yes. as they're unfolding, what I think, cannot be... What about suggesting lyrics? The Long, long and Winding Road. He's sitting there suggesting lyrics that made the song. He's mm-hmm. like, well, you know, it's waiting, then standing, you know. And yeah. Paul's like, oh, yeah, no, I think yeah. that's right. It's and so cool to you, witness. You've heard the the classic story of Sergeant Pepper about Mal with the alarm clock. Or? No, Paul and Mal were on a plane coming back oh, from right. England, yes, or or coming back from America to England, and Paul turned to Mal and said, "Pass the salt and pepper." And Mal goes, "The Sergeant Pepper? What?" And like that, that's a that was what they said, said was the in- amazing. Yeah. yeah, I think I read somewhere that in Mal Evans' account, it was something like. Mal asked what the S and P stand for on the top of the things, and Paul said, "Oh, salt and pepper." Oh, okay. But but then but then Mal heard it as Sergeant yeah. Pepper. What Sergeant Pepper? Yeah, that's hilarious. And then Paul was just like, "Boom." He's the original tall Gleek with glasses. <laughs> with glasses. Great but look. you know, like Mal uh, uh, never, I mean, for all his loyalty, when did he join with them? 62 or three. I yeah, mean, he was 60, there. I think it was he, 62. He and, uh, well, well, it would have been before that because he was on the tours. I mean, him yeah. and Neil were, yeah. were driving just, him yeah. in the van. I mean, they were like their roadies and uh, setting up the gigs and all that stuff. Mal, in all of that time, all the way through, had never received a raise, had never uh, been... And yet Neil rose through the ranks. He did, know? but I don't know that... Yeah, until he kind of got to a managerial position, I don't know that he kind of financially benefited yeah. anymore. But Mal Evans reached a point to where he was kind of like really struggling, and he had a wife and a kid at home, and it was like a whole deal where he basically had to come at some point to Neil and say, like, look, I kind of need a little extra. And, of course, when... Uh, the dark cloud of Alan Klein descended uh, on their midst. Uh, he fired Mal. He fired yeah. Neil. He certainly fired Magic Alex. And uh, and it was all only, things we need to talk about. It was yes. only with uh, with the Beatles protesting that Mal and Neil what got their jobs back. Yeah. But still, Mal didn't get ever ever a raise. I mean, he was like literally working off 1962 wages. Let's. Uh... Let's talk Alex. about Alex. Yeah, Alex. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> I mean, there's not, I don't know that much about him, but like some of those, some of the things that he came up with are still used to this day, like, I think, but that dude seemed crazy, like the, the bass instrument thing. And the, I mean, the, 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 the bizarro contraption with the revolving neck, like that how? just looks like, I mean, it looks like something that my child could have put together you know yeah I, I, I can't even imagine that one of the things i'm really disappointed in is that they don't have any real footage right. of of his studio i wanted so badly to see glenn johns and george harrison standing in mount in alex's control room going what the fuck is this definitely it seemed <laughs> odd to me i mean I, that's my forte is engineering and i i wanted more of that for yeah, sure yeah but it looked all the cables like i when i realized that they i mean that that old oscilloscope that you see at you know they showed that in the anthology too mm-hmm. is that was that that was part of the room right isn't yeah. that isn't that thing that they show kind yeah. of like it's just like a little trippy light box yeah, yeah yeah but that was that was 
from his actual studio at Apple, I think. Like that I thought yeah, I don't know if it made it into the building, but I think they do show that and one in one of the clips is saying that the entire thing was too noisy. Yeah. There was too much static sound yeah. and all like this stuff. Like it passed stuff. a signal, but it was not, I mean, Glenn was like, I can't make a record with this. It's like well, it distorted. Uh, and Alex at one point was saying that he could create his own, like, what was it? 72 track yeah. recorder. <laughs> and the Beatles are like, <laughs> we, we can't even get like an eight track recorder. George Martin's like, we'll put two, four track to, you know, together. Right. And he's saying, oh, I, I can give you a 72 track. And then he whittled it down to 16 tracks. And then finally, whenever they show up at the studio, it's like none of it's usable. And I always like the idea. Again, you don't get to see it, unfortunately, in the film. But the, the <laughs> little speakers yeah. was to have these tiny little speakers all around the room. That that's what you were going to be it, able to hear. It seems so unorganized. Just yeah. the cables being strewn about. But also, the fact that they were taking the when they went up to the roof, they were literally sending cables all the way up there from the control room downstairs. Yeah. So like. Four flights of stairs, all those cables, it just would have been a freaking nightmare. I, I can't imagine what it was like to work in those conditions. Yeah. It's funny to think about it because I, I guess maybe just for years I always thought, oh, they just like they just walked up the stairs to the roof. But it's like, oh wow, that's an entire what the, what is that? Like seven, four, eight floors? Yeah, because yeah, yeah, they're in the I basement. Think. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Four yeah, or maybe, five. Yeah, yeah, but maybe. yes, I mean just thinking you to send all the cables up and back down and to do all the testing with it just, I, it, it's mind-boggling. And then on top of that, it came out pretty tasty. I mean, the kick drum sound of this record yeah, the, is so tasty. The fact that they got recordings from the roof at all, I, I think and, it's a miracle that the roof didn't cave in. Yeah, There's that, or that the instruments stayed relatively in tune with yeah. the blistering cold yeah. winter. You can tell that Lennon is really struggling to play guitar, though. Like, yeah. Every time he tries to do that bend and get back, it's like, ooh. So Alex, the, his whole thing, he was somebody's friend. He he was, one person kind of brought him into the fold, right? It was right? Brian Jones. Brian who, Jones introduced him to John? Yeah. And John was just wowed because he made these little contraptions that whenever John was stoned or on acid or whatever, he was like, oh, it's a little... <laughs> the magic Alex read of his story is also equally ridiculous. I oh, mean, yeah, his Wikipedia like, page. It's fascinating because really the little blinking box... That uh, that plays on a loop or whatever that John Lennon was given, to my understanding, is about the only thing this man ever actually got right. Yeah. Everything else he put his hand to was a disaster. <laughs> and yet, if you watch even in this film, they're laughing about it. Like he, they, they find him an endless source of amusement just because of the absurdity of his ideas. They're like, well... You know, he's so clever. He came up with these things, and his ideas are so lofty and strange. But the reality of what he comes through it. And so Chris and I had a conversation recently. Is his whole bit just being this brilliant con man where he works his way into situations in the the rare footage that you see of him in his lab coat? He just looks like a This buffoon, is Apple you know? Electronics or whatever. Alexis and Apple Electronics. And he's like, I want to say hello to the girls of the world. Yes. I mean, he's very charming and funny and goofy, but like, definitely they, goofy. They bring in that weird revolving neck thing, and they're like, oh, we'll give him a million, half a million quid or whatever. Like, and they're laughing about it. Like, yeah, yeah of course. But <laughs> like, if, that's ever gonna work? I mean, that. <laughs> but if you go, if you go beyond that, like beyond the disaster of the studio, beyond all of this stuff. 
look at what he did, wound up doing in the 70s. He, like, thought, okay, well, I'll get into, like, terrorist uh, protection of vehicles. And so, like, he would con himself into being, uh, rep- you know, representing the Shah of Iran or whatever. And he would say, okay, I'm going to make you a fleet of these bulletproof cars. And they would test them by shooting guns at these things, and they would blow up instantly. Yeah. It was <laughs> and like then, more dangerous than if they had not. Yeah, so then someone else hired him, and, like, I think just starting the car caused it to blow up. I mean, That is insane. hilarious. I mean, like, nothing, like... Potentially fatal mistakes. <laughs> Man. So, uh... Okay, do you remember the scene where they are coming back from lunch, I believe, and all four of them are walking up the, the stairwell at the front, and they all look over to the side, and they eyeball those two chicks, like... They're both, all of four of them are very aware of those two girls. There are lots of Apple employees that that kind of oh, pop like, up throughout. But is he talking about Apple I'm, scruffs? I'm talking about the scruffs. Oh, you're talking about the scruffs? Yes, oh, yeah. those, those two well, girls out the, front. One of the scruffs is pretty darn cute. The other, yeah. The one the, who's like, you know, she's just like, I'm only here for Paul. Yeah, the one that said <laughs> something about a live show. Yeah. Yeah, she was very cute, but I yeah. feel like... I don't know. I, I don't know if I'm just reading into it, but I feel like there was a couple, like Paul especially, kind of went looked over there and kind was gave, like, gave her the nod. Yes. Like, hey, what's up? <laughs> well, I find it interesting that there's only two of them out there. First of all, I mean, maybe just for that one just moment. For that, yeah. And so polite, they don't. They're all walking through. Yeah, they, they don't. They don't jump on them or uh-uh. anything. You know. Well, and the interviewer is trying to say, "Well, what do you think of Yoko being around?" And they're like, "Well, it's nobody's business, is it?" Yeah, yeah. You know. And and he's like, well, that's like, that's a pretty good answer, you know. Certainly, it's certainly not the screaming, crying girls. What about real quickly, since we're talking about them? What about the fact that once they go to the basement, there's like a window right there that they can see into. Like the camera just keeps rolling over, and you see the girls right outside the window. To be sitting there, able to witness a Beatles session. Yeah, that's just from of, outside. I never knew that that was that. I know. I that's amazing. I thought that was pretty revealing. That's interesting. So just while we were on the subject of girls, there are lots of girls throughout this film. You see Apple employees and then, but then other times we're like, there's just this short haired blonde girl sitting on the floor at the studio and you're like, okay, who's the blonde? Yeah. Is that Linda's friend? It's like the same day that he. She was a manager or something. I read about they. they yeah, put... there, there, there are tons of times where just like in the control room, you'll see some some random young pretty girl sitting there, and you'll go, yeah. "Okay, wait, now who's that? Is that an Apple employee? Is it a friend of Yoko's? Is it a friend of Linda's? Uh, you, you know, and, and I have those questions. <laughs> like, yeah, who are a, these? I don't think she gets a credit. Like, we don't really know who she is, but I assume she was some Apple. But there's more than one. Yeah, there, there, there are several of them, and I, oh. I kind of, I made note of that every time one this random pretty girl shows up in the control room or in the hallway or something. I was like, now who's that? Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. What? Uh, what is this? This thing that's in your notes here that says the famous photo debunked. Okay, this is great. Now, I I think I may have mentioned this to you. There is a very famous. You have the Beatles recording session book. Yeah. Now you can you can go grab that. You don't have to do it now, but you can go grab that later and look at this photo right on the Let It Be sessions, where where the where the book first starts talking about the Let It Be sessions. It doesn't in in Lewison's book. He doesn't have anything about. Twickenham, but he just has the first day of the Apple recording sessions 
and then talks kind of extensively about what led up to it, about right. how Let It Be was a disaster. Yeah. And there's that picture is on that first page of it. And, and you know, in the caption on it says, glum faces and bad times. The Beatles listen to a clearly uninspiring playback. And But this picture of them has been, it has perpetuated the myth of of Let It Be for 50 years now of the the disappointment in it. And what you see is you see Paul hovering over the, the, the board, Lennon sitting in a ball with his feet up on the thing, looking miserable, Yoko looking at the floor, Ringo looking at the floor, George kind of looking away. And this picture has long symbolized how awful these sessions were. Right. And, I mean, even to the point where you see it parodied, parodied in The Simpsons, and, you know, it's it has come to represent the misery of these sessions. But there are shots in the film that show you the exact moment. Like, it shows... Paul hovering over the board in the exact yeah. same position and Lennon sitting in the ball. Everyone's wearing the same clothes. It's clearly it, within 20 seconds of this photo being taken and you see Lennon giggling and laughing and talking to Paul and I'm like, that photo is being taken completely out of context. Like yeah. maybe they were serious for five seconds, but they weren't in bad moods. Yeah. You see footage of this entire day where they're dressed in those clothes and they're laughing and they're playing and they're working and they're making progress. I mean, as far as the... I mean, it's so obvious. Like, there is literally the point in the movie where shit started rocking, and that is Billy Preston. Billy shows up. It he flips. walks in, yeah. and just the mood freaking changes. It's so obvious. Absolutely. I mean, it flips the momentum a, a total 180. Yes. Wait, real quick, before we get into that, is there is there anything from Twickingham that winds up on the record? Yes, the the only thing that winds up on the record is when John says, Queen says no to pot-smoking FBI members. But actual <laughs> music, though. No. I mean, songs that they rehearsed at Twickenham end up being re-recorded. Right, eventually. right, right. But I mean, like actual audio from no. those sessions. No. Okay. Other than, other than the one quote from John that I just right. mentioned. Okay. Yeah, all of that was done at Apple. I found it disappointing that the first day they were at Apple after they installed the the eight track uh, the two boards yeah. together that they didn't allow cameras that day. I was like, man, so there's a whole day lost. Mm -hmm. And there's a great exchange between George Martin and Ringo when they're talking that morning and George walks over to Ringo and says, "So we should Get down to business today then, right? And Ringo goes, oh, yeah, well, actually, we did yesterday. We had a, uh, had a great day yesterday. And George goes, yes, from your point of view, but not from mine. <laughs> and, and I'm like, I love that. Damn. Yeah, George dude. Martin. There's another, there's another moment. Uh, and I think it's at the end of day, it's in part three. Okay, the, yes. It's, it's during the session where, like, Ringo gives the gum to Yoko. Okay, right at the end of the day when they're leaving the studio... Paul turns to George Martin, who's staying behind with Glenn Johns, and he says, so the one you said was best. Not he, And he's like, it's not best? And then George, George just kind of goes, yeah, it still doesn't make it. Like, George Martin has yeah. given him the straight scoop. He's yeah. like, he just kind of, and, and then Paul kind of was like, okay, and walks out, and that's the end of the day. And it's like, you can tell that Paul's trying to see some bright and George Martin is like 
it's just not good enough. Keeping it real. It's not yeah. up to Beatles standards. Yes, and that's I think that's where George Martin's frustration is. He's like, let me produce you guys. Let me let let me let's do some vocal overdubs. Let's put some let's put some jizz on this. Yeah, <laughs> you mm. know. That's I mean, is that just... and that, is that right around the same time with uh, the, one of my favorite moments is when. Uh, George Martin walks into the room and says, all right, boys, let's tune up and then back at it. Yes. And Lennon starts to stand up and you can tell he's he's having a goof because Paul goes, oh, John, no, no. <coughs> and he's slowly standing up and he turns around and he goes, I've had some wine, you know. Let's all remember Bob Wooler. Bob, Bob Wooler being the, uh, he's a journalist, right? He was, no, he was the DJ at the Cavern who called out John Lennon after John Lennon took his little vacation with Brian Epstein. Yes. And he made some implication. Impl- implication about their that vacation. there was a little oh, wow. hanky-panky, and John Lennon promptly uh, beat the living shit out of him yes. and like, sent him right to the front, hospital. In, yeah, in front of like, oh, screaming he said something teens about, and whatever. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so for him to make this reference from like 62 or whatever yeah, that would have been, in front of everybody, like there's an awkward giggle, like, <laughs> yes, that's right. Whenever you almost <laughs> killed <Yes>. that man. <laughs> Back when you used to be super violent. Yes. yes. But Crazy. For, but it's funny because he makes that to George Martin. I just love it. We all remember Bob Wooler. Peace and love. Fuck off. <laughs> so let's, you want to delve into the Billy Preston? You yes, guys wanna... totally. Yes. Okay. Uh, Billy's, <clears throat> man, this is some, it's so amazing to watch what he brings. And, you know, and that's been kind of said forever, you know, that Billy Preston, made everybody put everybody on their best behavior but it's not just that he put them on their best behavior it's that he really does provide such a musical lift as they say you're giving us a lift yes his 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 whole uh you know air about him is this funky earthy soul thing and it should be pointed out perhaps that throughout the entirety of this journey up until his arrival it's like they're almost presaging him at every turn it's like well you know we need a keyboard part here but that means well we're only down to one guitar now and they keep trying to figure out how to make this keyboard element work uh, and then you've also got George Martin talking about Billy earlier on. No, it's George Re- Harrison because oh, George, George Harrison. He's talking about George he's talking Harrison. about Ray Charles's he's band. Talking about the Ray Charles says, session, and he's like, you know, Ray doesn't even play organ anymore. He gives it off to Billy, and Billy does his dancing, and he plays his organ. Yeah. And he says, and he's better than Ray Charles. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, There's <laughs> and everyone's just kind of like, hmm, I see, because yeah. they all remember Billy quite yeah. fondly from the early uh, '60s, '62. It was they yeah. toured. Yeah. And Billy How old was, was Billy then? Like sixteen? So I mean, because in because in nineteen sixty nine he looks like he's about twenty. Right. So right. I mean, you have to wonder, like, so I when they just, met him. There's a famous footage you've seen uh, where Billy Preston is eleven years old playing with Nat King Cole on the Nat King Cole show. Okay, I have not seen that. Okay, much. it's black and white, and I want to say it's from fifty five. Wow. Okay, so then he would have been in his so he early was, to mid twenties. Yeah. Back? Okay. Yeah. So he's it's a brilliant footage if you ever get a chance. Black and white and they're they're both playing this organ and they're doing the old trick where you one of them sits at the bench and then the other one kind of comes around the back and they just keep switching switching spots on the bench and they're taking turns playing singing Blueberry Hill. And it's great, but he's like like the tiniest kid. He looks like Webster or something. Yeah. It's amazing. And so then his presence, whenever he walks into these sessions, 
he's kind of wide-eyed. It's hard to get a read on him if, at first because you could tell he's just like overwhelmed. Like, what am I? I know these guys, but what is this going on in here? Yeah. Was now did he? I'd always heard that George invited him. That's what you, I think you told me. I, I think that's been. It's been kind of maybe misreported that way for a long time. But what, really, what, he was just popping was in because he had a show there, there yes, that day. And, and I think he was either stopping into Apple to say hi, yep. or he was stopping into Apple because he had some sort of meeting or business there. Yeah. It. It. So I think what has maybe been misreported over the years was that George called him up and said, come play with us. What happened was I think George ran into him in the lobby and said, Come say hi to the guys. Yeah, at which led to sit down play. and play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 immediately, like I don't remember what the very first song was, but the, there was just a couple of licks that he threw in, and everybody well, just was like, well, "Yes!" Right from the get go, and and the Lewis and book supports this. It talks about the and and these the, this book too. Uh, it says that right from the get go, they work on "Don't Let Me Down." I've got a feeling, and then they start. Uh, playing around. Oh, and dig a pony. Yeah, and then get back. Right immediately, he's got the hooks for "I've Got a Feeling" and "Don't Let Me Down." Mm-hmm. And I mean, just the piano part for "Don't Let Me Down" alone. The fact that you've got "Don't Let Me Down." I mean, that makes the song. Yeah, that's the hook of the song. Yeah, and then of course, get back. I mean, but but that's you see him right away playing. The signature parts. It he's got his parts almost instantly, and that is so cool. And then it just sort of feeds into them them all having a new, like it's just like it breathes life into everything, like the whole room. You can just feel it, and you can tell he is so happy to be there. Yes, almost to the point of like kind of uh, submission. Like he he doesn't say much. Yeah. There's very little audio of him talking during this Again, thing. Again, it's I think he's awestruck, man. Yeah, I think he's I, totally I agree. starstruck by them. But and... musically, he's also coming off of working with Ray Charles, so you're dealing with jazzy gospel changes, like pretty advanced stuff in that realm to come in and kind of rock out with these kind of uh, com- com- comparatively more simple tunes yeah. than say you know, some of the more sophisticated stuff that Ray Charles is one, probably One thing in. that really blew my mind is when George is talking about uh, when he brings in Old Brown Shoe and he plays oh, yeah. the E augmented chord. He says, what do you call that? You, and you assume that George Harrison doesn't really know what he's playing because, you know, the Beatles didn't really know the names of chords. You know, I mean, they knew A and they knew G and stuff, but but they didn't really know the advanced names of chords. So he says, oh, what is this, Bill? It's an E with a C. It's an E augmented. It's it's a raised fifth, an augmented fifth. That's called an augmented chord. Billy stares at it and goes, uh, an E with a C. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's an E with a C. And and I'm like, oh, my God, Billy Preston doesn't know what an, he doesn't know that it's called an augmented chord. Right. He knows it because he knows every chord on earth, but he doesn't know what it's called. Right. That blew my mind. I mean, isn't it, it, it the piano itself is lends itself to vision and shapes? Like, yeah. like you, you can like your mind can separate it all, like, and so you don't really need to know the name, but you kind of can know this pattern, the shape. That, yes, because mm. it is it is very mathematical and it is patterns. But but it it, it is kind of strange when, but, but but clearly what that is is this is a prodigy. This is mm-hmm. a guy who had it. It was just in his blood. I mean, he yeah. he knew it 
instinctively, and it didn't really matter to him what the names of the chords were. He he knew the sounds, and he knew how to find them. Mm-hmm. There's another great moment right after he says that, too, where uh, George goes, yeah, I never used an E with a C before. I've used an E with an F, and then he plays the E with the F, which is the seven flat nine chord, which is the chord from I Want You, She's So Heavy. Da, 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 da. Mm-hmm. So the minute you hear George play that chord on the piano, you go, oh, that's the I Want You chord. Yeah. And then like a couple scenes later, they're working on I Want You. Yeah. Like, oh. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, those little things uh, totally make it for me, you know. And that's the kind of stuff that, you know, you can't talk about with a lot of people. Uh, oh, Lennon comes to life with the presence of Billy. Uh, oh, yeah. Lennon seems to really kind of wake up quite a bit. I, th- I, think, I think Lennon really changes his demeanor throughout the Apple sessions. Yeah. Twickenham, Lennon is just a mess. But once he gets to, to Apple, he seems like he really is on his best behavior. And he doesn't seem as strung out. He seems a lot more lucid. Yes. Um, and focused. Right. I mean, they're goofing off. All of them are goofing off a lot, but they but they do seem to have more focus. Mm-hmm. So I don't really want to go real deep into this next subject, but I, because the guy really wasn't in the movie that much, but uh, obviously had a huge impact on the whole situation. But the this Klein figure, um, he was basically, as I understand, the the Stones manager at the time. Yes. And John was wanting him to become the Beatles manager. Yes. But Glenn was basically like, oh, dude, I know that Man, guy. You don't that, want that. that and warning, so, dude. It's, yeah. so, it's so foreboding. But it, it ended up being a terrible decision, correct? Yes. Well, the, the, the thing is, I, I definitely had this on my talking points because Klein is the real villain looming in the shadows here. This is what, what this film shows us very clearly, even if, even if the editing is, you know, mm-hmm. whatever. It shows us that the Beatles were still tight. They were still brothers. Even the, they, yeah, sure, they were drifting apart. Sure, they were starting to struggle with whether or not they wanted to still be Beatles. But they're still a unit of brothers. And it puts Abbey Road in such new context, too, because you see that they had all these songs and George Martin wants to produce. It makes total sense why. Paul and John agreed to make another album and produce it like an old, you know, to really do it up with vocals and strings and clever arrangements and all this stuff. But what really broke up the Beatles was not that. It's whatever drifting they were doing musically, I think might have been resolved. The real nail in the coffin was Klein. Klein was what did it. And, and, what happened in the spring of 69, this is, of course, January, what happened in the spring of 69 was Lennon coerced the other Beatles into getting on Team Klein, and McCartney simply refused to get on. And it finally came to a head in about May or June. So while they were making Abbey Road, Klein had already completely split them. So they were united on a musical task to finish this record that they all knew was going to be good um with paul driving of course but lennon was on board with it lennon was contributing he was right come together and because and like you know all of that stuff with the medley you know where he's got sun king and mean mr mustard and polythene pam together lennon was 100 percent invested in the completion of abbey road but as soon as it was done he announced in a meeting i think you're daft i want a divorce I'm leaving. Yeah. Done. Yeah. Beatles are over. Which Alan Klein, already on board at that point, said, 
let's keep this quiet. Yes. Keep this, yes. under, this, was, this under is, your hat. This is September of 69, immediately as uh, Abbey Road is released. Let It Be is still in the vaults. Like, they, they shelved it. They were like, yeah. they heard Glenn Johns' mixes, and they said, no, this we is not good. This we out, cannot, yeah. this is not up to snuff. Yeah. So Lennon leaves the band, and then Klein says, well, no, no, don't tell the public. Don't tell the public. I'm still renegotiating your contracts. I'm trying to get you more money. And so Lennon had to sit on that for seven months. Right. And is it not also worth mentioning that uh, Apple was announced in 68, right? So we're looking at 1969, about a year later. And would you say at this point... Less less than a year later, because it was like the summer of 68 when they announced it. Right. But... Have they reached a point already by the time Klein comes around where they realize that this venture, this Apple thing, has already kind of become an unwieldy mess? Yes. So it's astonishing. I find it of note that within less than a year, they've already hemorrhaged enough money and descended into the chaos of what the Apple thing became that they there is probably a need for someone to come in and... Get this thing together. Oh, absolutely. But the the real divide there was that Paul wanted it to be the Eastmans. Right. Paul wanted Linda's dad and brother to come in and represent them, and the other three wanted clients. They were already hugely wealthy. Absolutely. And and yes. they yes yes. I mean, well that, established business yeah. folks. New but, York, but New cl- York family. You yeah. Know. I think the appeal, as I understand it, to uh, uh, to one inclined was that he is this sort of no-nonsense gangster-type con man. Ringo says, oh, he's a con man. But, but he's on our side. He's working for us, yeah. Well, I, 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 thought, I thought something kind of weird is when John was telling, I don't think Paul was in the room, but he was trying to convince the other two, Ringo and, and George, and he's like sitting there saying, well, man, this guy knows everything about everything, and he knows more about us than we know about ourselves. He knows he that, knows me better than you do. He yeah, says to George, see, yeah. and, and you see George is looking at him like, "Come on, dude!" dude I, and that's like another moment where you're like, maybe he wasn't high right at that moment, but, but for Linda, him to describe a guy like that means he would the Kool Aid he was drinking was yes. heroin. Yes, well, He's but, but Lennon was he very pie in the sky about yeah. so many things. Like he was, he was the guy that fell in love with Magic Alex. You know, yeah. I mean, Lennon was so gullible. Lennon mm-hmm. was always in search of a father figure yes, as yes. well. So and to have was, this tough guy kind of be like, "I'm going to protect you, John Lennon." Yeah. But the 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 the, the untold but, story is that the, the Alan Klein was always managing the Beatles was always his end game. And so he worked his way all the way through all this stuff, through the, through stones. the stones, and made his way to this point to where he now... But what I find fascinating is that he left a, a trail of dead. <laughs> I mean, like, go back to <laughs> what Including he Brian did, Jones. Did, yeah. b- before, like, the, the Sam Cooke business. I mean, he... He basically got Sam Cooke into publishing his own song, saying, you're going to own all this stuff, but then had a like a secret publishing company where he really owned Sam Cooke's stuff. And so, like, whenever Sam Cooke tragically died, untangling that whole mess so that the estate of Sam Cooke could actually get some money from his work, his life's work, was a nightmare because yeah. Alan Klein had all these shady back backstreet deals. Yeah. I mean, and everyone knew that. I mean, like, and Glenn Johns makes a very sort of tentative uh, reference to the shadiness of this guy. Like, within a single minute, if you don't agree with what he's saying, he'll change the subject mid-sentence. And he keeps warning. He keeps on going, ask Keith, ask Mick. 
Like yeah. he's talk. He's like, talk to Mick, talk to Keith. They'll tell you. And Lennon's just not having it. And I, and I feel like Lennon throughout this film is dismissive of Glenn Johns, whereas McCartney seems to be pretty engaging with him. Yes, there is a couple of comments Lennon, he made to Lennon him. Lennon really seems to be. He said, uh, "I love that." I know he was kind of joking, but he kind of wasn't when he's like, "Fucking hell, we're all stars, man! Don't you stop the tape on us!" Yeah, like yeah. he's like basically. There's one time where he goes, "The only damper here is you, Glenn Johns." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, he got. I guess he stopped the tape on him, and yeah. maybe that was Paul who said that. But no, Paul just says, "Fuck face." Yeah, and uh, John's like, "We're stars here, man!" Like, yeah. who the are on, you? Fuck face. Yeah, that yeah. was hilarious, man. That was so funny. <laughs> Oh, man. Yeah. So, yeah, the, the Klein, F that guy. Yeah, I mean, it, it, I think ultimately he's the he's the villain, yeah. even though he, in, but he's looming in the shadows. And it's great because when they show this picture the first time, you hear, never give me your money. Yeah. So that was that was about this guy? Yes. Yes, that was, that, it was that's about, amazing. It, it was really about Apple being a failure and but but it was also about klein making all these promises it, and he's like you don't give me your money you just give me your funny paper and yeah. you know and then and in the middle of negotiations we break down think about too though because uh, it's mentioned in the film about the absence of mr epstein right now by this point the beatles are probably pretty aware that the songwriting the publishing whatever contracts epstein had hooked them up with were probably a little naively constructed, yes. perhaps uh, before the uh, massive crush of fame and success could have maybe, uh, you know, endeared them to a better deal. Yeah. To and where now are they not in a position to where, like, we need a hard ass. We don't need some gentle, loving father. We need, like, a tough guy who's going to represent us. Right, I mean, surely well, I think that's, that's the what, appeal. I think that's what George and Ringo and uh, obviously John was sold from the get go. But I think George and Ringo kind of came around to that thinking, and they also didn't want to go along with Paul because they're like, well, if we hire your in laws, because I mean, he wasn't married yet, but he was six weeks from being married. It's like we we hire your future in laws, then they're going to be biased toward you constantly. Paul's always going to be the guy on the inside. Well, that is with, a good point know. too. That if they yeah. weren't even married yet. Think yeah. about what that really is saying. It's like, we're going to hook up with your girlfriend's family. What if you guys bust up? Yeah. I mean, are they really going to still be looking out for us? Yeah. Like, what happens What happens if it ends poorly? Right? Then, you know. I mean, what if Jane Asher's family had taken over at some right. point? Right. That didn't go well. No, not at all. <laughs> so, um, the, the there was this conversation between Paul and... Uh, and George about India that I know you were. Yes. The, the, the I, I found that to be pretty uh, interesting to the, the way George gets defensive because Paul's talking the in context, he's talking about this film uh, of them in India from the year before when they went to India following the Maharishi uh, at the beginning of 1968, they wound up writing all of the songs that became the white album that they recorded later in the year. And this was just less than, well, it was almost as exactly a year before. And uh, so Paul's talking about how he had re how he had just watched the film of, of them from that. And he was saying, you know, describing it to all the other Beatles. And, but, but where George really starts to, to bristle is where Paul says to John, you're just not being yourself. It's, you know, you see these shots of you walking and it's just not you, you know, and, and, and then George kind of pipes up with, do you regret your time there? 
And Paul's like, no, but, you know, we're just not being ourselves, you know. And, and Paul's just kind of doing that thing that he does where he's trying to put his own spin on. A doop, a doobie doo. Yeah, his own spin of what he perceives. But George has, he finally has enough. And I can't remember the exact quote, but he says he leads off by waiting for a moment to speak. And then he goes, that's the biggest joke of all, you know, to be yourself. And he's like, and he goes, if we were really, he was like, that was the whole point of us being there. But if we were really ourselves, then we wouldn't be who we are now. And he's looking at Paul and then Paul kind of just doesn't have a reply and kind of, oh yeah, it's like total conversation ender. Yeah. And you can tell because, you know, George was so invested in the Maharishi. He really believed in all that stuff. And he was the one that wanted the other Beatles to go to India and he wanted it to work out. Um so he had to have had some resentment over the fact that it ended the way it did. And just to hear Paul being so dismissive of it, like he knows. And George is like, you didn't get it at all. Yeah. that The India thing to me is such an interesting episode in their journey, obviously. But like, <clears throat> first of all, the fact that Paul has this footage that he's bringing up and mentioning <clears throat> where he's got these... He's describing the montage of how everyone you see everyone's faces. I love I love how they show you the footage, it's and so you're cool. seeing his descriptions are exactly as it is on the film. And <laughs> and and I think the point Paul's trying to make is that Lennon, much like George, was very enamored with the Maharishi, but also trying to kind of play the part of a worthy disciple, which is sort of a anti John, really. I mean, John's like kind of the Dylan, you know, don't follow leaders, watch your parking meters, yeah. whatever. Yeah. So for Lennon to be seen, I mean, this is footage Lennon hasn't seen yeah. in all likelihood, right? So for Paul to have this observation of like calling John out as sort of like, who were you? What were you doing there? Like, yeah. what's that? Is it not also worth mentioning that this is right around the time that Epstein dies? Right. Yeah, well, was, he died right before they went to India. Right. Yeah, right so, like, it's kind of an emotionally raw nerve, I think, for all of them because it's right in the midst of all this upheaval in their whole world, you know. And I think for George to kind of pull the camera back into a sort of, sort of more cosmic sense of, like, well, that was the whole point of us going there was to lose the sense of ego and this whole thing that he's really witnessing and contributing to in his own way that they're struggling with in this moment now of ego and pretense and like, you know, uh, the challenge of communication and, and everyone's sense of self-worth and value. It's like, he's kind of really on the money in terms of his observation of like, if we'd really taken away from that, what we should have, uh, we, wouldn't, we be... wouldn't be fighting like yeah. we are now. Yeah. We'd be kind of in this cosmic sort of communal sense. It's also worth mentioning that, Part of what led to their fleeing the Maharishi and, and disowning him was the notion that Maharishi was trying to get with one of the, with Mia Farrow's sister or whatever, yeah. and like, which was planted into their brains by Magic by Alex. Alex, yeah. So all of the, it's such a rich tapestry of chaos that had them, I, I believe the story was like, you know, fleeing from the Maharishi camp, like afraid that they were being chased by the Maharishi's handlers. And didn't Maharishi have some quote where he was like, those damn beetles or something like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah he had that. like some angry thing. Whereas they were leaving like, I'll kill you. 
because well, yeah, Lennon, Lennon did say Lennon did out. say that after he called him out that Maharishi gave him a look that yeah. was like, "I will kill you." Yeah, but he, like you're actually, blowing it. Yeah, like you're, yeah. Yeah, this is my whole thing. This is my highlight of my whole bit. Yeah. But uh, I do think George's personality is more suited to that environment, and I think he knew that Paul's is like the opposite of that environment, being that he's kind of a little bit of an egomaniac and is probably not even capable of losing his ego. And I think he knows that. So he's probably, when he's snarking yeah. at Paul, he's kind of thinking to himself like, oh yeah, like you could fill a book with what you don't know. <laughs> T- totally. And, and I do feel like he hoped that maybe John would be an ally in that situation. And, and, and I think nobody is more disappointed in John than George. Because I think George is looking at... It, where they were at the beginning of 1968 before Yoko came into the picture. It, he was probably looking at, man, this is John's chance to really bond with me. Cause I think George always wanted to be tighter with John. I, yeah. I you know, you read enough about the Beatles. You see that, that there is that kind of kid brother. Yeah. Chasing and, and, him around. Yeah. Like he wanted to be more like John maybe than he did like Paul. And I think he thought John would be, a great ally in this spiritual But he was in many respects because Lennon would have, I think, gone down that path. But again, we're looking at another father figure letting him down once he realizes that Maharishi isn't what he claims to be or is led to believe that. And so once again, he pushes away, rejects. This uh, Pharaoh sibling is Prudence (coughs) Pharaoh, yes. Yes. Which is about the song and that's like where all that came from. That's correct, yeah. And, uh, you know, and it, it, it... I think if you if you read between the lines there, you can kind of see where jo- uh, George's resentment of John has festered. You know, like John says, and oh my God, we didn't even talk about the flower pot conversation. Oh my God, yes, we have to talk about the flower pot conversation. Hit it. Well, let's use that. Let's yes, use this okay. to kind of go back. Well, John refers to it as a festering wound, but I, but just the final point I was making there is, I think that from from the point of the Maharishi to the point of the get back sessions. George has festered a lot of resentment, particularly toward John. Because yeah, because Paul is the one who's always got the left-handed guitar laying around. He's real quick to tell George specifically what to play. And if he doesn't, I've got the Taxman solo right yeah. here. I can do the loopy loop on another girl, whatever. <clears throat> Whereas John, I don't think would ever do that yeah. to George. I don't think he's musically confident enough to say... I'm going to do this here. Yeah. So the 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 uh, fracture between George and John does seem way more personal, more brotherly, like, how could you leave me here and run off with that showboat, you know? But the, 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 the situation right after George leaves and you've got this thing where Paul's sitting around with tears in his eyes, like this that, is the that, end. To me, that's the most powerful and scene. And then in there the were two. Yeah. yeah, he says, and then there were two. And then it just zooms tight on his face, and you just see him. He's kind of shaking, and his eyes are totally welled up. And like, that's that is the Because he shot. sees the whole thing falling apart. Yeah. And mm-hmm. then someone eventually comes in and says, Okay, John's just got here. And oh, the he's whole... on the phone. You want to talk to him on the phone. <clears throat> right. <He's> first... Yeah. <laughs> and so whenever John shows up, there's a situation where. They, John and Paul are going to have a private conversation, and so they go to the cafeteria. There's no cameras, 
but the cameramen have planted a microphone yeah. in the flower Talk about pot. Ethically dubious, man. It is, but what a magic moment. <laughs> yes. And that thing, you could rewatch that over and over yeah. again because you get such insight into their dynamic, into where they're at in this moment, even just the way they communicate. I think you and I talked about even Lennon's accent. Oh, just yeah. dude, he slips he's into heavy scouse. So scouse. Like he's 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 spewing things that you can't even understand. And thank God for the subtitles. You know, because yeah. yeah. he's speaking in a way that he doesn't speak on camera. Yeah. He's scousing it up and you're just like, whoa, this is intense. And Paul catches it. I mean, it's not like there's a communication lost there. I mean, Lennon's like skipping words. Like yeah. it's like half spoken sometimes. Yeah. But he's but he's revealing so much. He's like, you know, talking about the way they've treated George and it's just been a festering wound and we never gave him any bandages. Yeah. yeah. He's yeah. sticking then, up for George, but then he's also saying you do it to me too. Yeah. And he was and, like, well, I think what's almost more revealing is how much Paul owns it. Yeah. He says he says, "Yeah, I know. Yeah, I do." He yeah. doesn't he doesn't try to say, "No, I don't. No, I don't." But, you know, so John's like, you know, the the things I do regret are when I let you ruin my songs, you know, because I was too scared. So I let you run with the ball. Right. Yeah. And he's like, a lot of times you're right. Like your musical choices are correct. But then a lot of times they're wrong. And I can't help but think because it's I think prior to that where he keeps trying to bring across the universe back into the session because he was very upset with the version that they yeah, recorded the year like before. The way they did it. Because it's real chirpy and goofy and everyone's just goofing off and yeah. throwing silly ideas into the mix. He felt like Paul didn't take it seriously. Right. You know? And, 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 and Is that the recording that they were listening to from that like little yes. record player? Yeah, it's like an acetate that they yes. brought in. Yes, yeah. okay. But, but to put all of that in context, John would later really throw Paul under the bus for the way he... Uh, he would say he ruined my songs, but like he would use Strawberry Fields, for example. He was like, it was this really beautiful, simple song. And then Paul had to go and make it this crazy, you know, which, of course, John went along with that. But then I guess in hindsight, he resented those things. Well, and Paul became the easy target, as did George Martin in later interviews, because for Strawberry Fields, John Lennon sitting there telling George Martin stuff like, you know, I want a really slow, heavy, sludgy version, but then I like this other version. I mean, he's he's lending to the chaos, yeah. you know, as a, Tomorrow Never Knows, where he wants to sound like a monk on a hillside, a thousand monks yeah. chanting all at once. I mean, he's full of goofy ideas and trippy nonsense. Yeah. So he contradicts himself constantly. Yeah. But it but it is a, that that whole conversation is am, is amazing because you know he he sits there and he calls Paul out. He says, you know. You, you know, we let you run with the ball on our songs, but then you won't let us have the same equality on your songs. You're like, I'm Paul McCartney. I know, you know, and, and, and Paul does, he, he sits there and he's like, yeah, you're, you're right. I do. But then, but then Paul flips it and says, you know, but you were always the boss. You were always the boss. And now you're trying to make me boss. And, and that's what he's really commenting on is how in the wake of, uh, Brian Epstein's death that John had just withdrawn. John had crawled into a hole and refused to be the band leader that he always was in the early days. Because if you go back and look at the band throughout the early, I mean, you know, with Hard Day's Night and all that, that, John Lennon is driving that ship 100% all the way up through Help and Rubber Soul and then it slowly becomes McCartney's band. Mm-hmm. And, and, and not not that John wasn't contributing good things, but Paul became the one driving. Paul became the motivating uh, 
Well, and they started writing separately more, right. and and their own unique styles of composition and how they approached it started to develop in very different ways, to where Paul really became the craftsman that we know and love, whereas Lennon, even in this film, is basically saying, yeah, I don't have songs, but put my back against the wall and I usually come through just fine, meaning I'm going to wait till the last minute and yeah. crank out like five songs. But, which... even, but even during these sessions, he never really does. Paul's the one who really comes up with the, the money, you know, let it be in Long and Winding Road and get back and... Lennon had a couple of good ones, but but man, during those sessions, I mean, I mean, they had to resort to one after nine oh nine because John wasn't coming up with anything new. Uh, uh, don't let me down. That's John's, right? Yes. And, and what about I got a feeling? That was well, a, a mishmash. It was, it was, it it was a mishmash. Because those are, I mean, I think those contributions from John are pretty amazing. Yes, they they are. And I love Dig a Pony, but you know, John was the first to be like, "Oh, that was a terrible." <laughs> Is it not also worth mentioning briefly that hearing John talk about like Paul's controlling of the creative aspect of it, you're also dealing with a guy like Lennon who really resented not getting to be the one to sing. Why don't we do it in the road? Yeah. Like, I, and, why and, didn't he let me sing that? And, That's way more suited for me. And he said the same thing about Oh Darling. Exactly. Subsequent. And to imagine Lennon, I mean, I'm sure he would have done a fine job, but McCartney's vocal on that. I mean, McCartney just... Effortless. Can, yeah. And it's so good. I mean, like... His vocals are amazing. Yeah. I, lo I love the scene early on at Twickenham where he's trying to get John to sing harmony on I've Got a Feeling. Yeah. And John's going, oh, this is he's like, I can't. And he's like, he's like oh, I can't do it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, that's, and Paul's that's like, yeah, scene. you can. Yeah. Like, just get up there. Do yeah. your thing. Where's Mr. Moonlight? Yeah. yeah. Where's Where's me and my monkey, which you recorded three months ago? Right. You know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, it should also be mentioned that... Uh, McCartney's vocal exhibition throughout this entire process is nothing short of... It's staggering. I mean, every time. I mean, they could be goofing on something, and the second he gets on a mic, it just feels like so perfect, particularly on the ballads. Anytime yes. he's sitting down, he, he, he doesn't have it all sorted out, but he'll just give a pass at a verse on Let It Be, and you're just like, oh, my God, it's like butter. Yeah. His voice is just amazing. Though, I, I think I, it's I will... funny how the timbre is, of his voice changes too. There's he sounds kind of like he's doing characters on certain songs. Yeah, it's for sure. crazy. Yeah, he's uh, got his Elvis in his back pocket, his right. fats, whatever. And I mean, yeah, it's it's really wild how he can do that. There's one specific thing that just to be a dissenting voice here. There's one specific thing that he does that absolutely drives me crazy, and it's. On a throwaway song that doesn't amount to jack shit, but it's Dig It. And mm. whenever they do Dig It, there's it show you see them doing it a couple different times. I love what John's doing, because he's doing all the I'm big enough to get it, let's get it. Like a rolling stone, like the FBI. Lennon is improvising and it's really inspired. Yeah. And the whole time. Throughout that, Paul's going, dig it up, you can dig it up, you can dig it up, can you dig it up? Like, And I'm like, shut up, dude, stop doing that. And even when uh, Glenn Johns and Phil Spector did their mixes of it, they mixed McCartney out of that because they're like, he's ruining it. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think that speaks to a larger thing with Paul just slathering over anything to where it's like basically someone will be trying to sing a verse to a new thing and he's just... 
kind of mindlessly harmonizing yeah. like over everything before the songs even established yeah, its framework. Yeah, you can see kind of doing that with Across the Universe and with All yeah. Things Must Pass a little bit. Just, and it, it, I really keep waiting for someone to say, hey, can you just give well, it a second uh, to you, breathe? Tom, you brought this up. Is the, the, the great example is the Don't Let Me Down when they're trying to do the uh, I'm in love for the first oh. time. For the first time, you know, it's like those backing vocal ideas are terrible. Horrendous. And, you know, Glenn Johns actually kind of makes a suggestion where he's like, well, maybe don't do that, but maybe add voices one at a time. Be like, I'm in love for the first time. And then stack Paul it on up. The next yeah. one, George on the on the third one. Yeah. That's a pretty decent idea. But then finally, it's George Harrison who says, honestly, I think it's bloody awful. Yeah. Like he yeah. says, if you had that tape recorded, you'd throw it right out. He's yes. dead right about that. that. Is, and, and that's the end of it. And it's yeah. like, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, so. like, okay, so let's move on down the road. To we got to talk, talk, talk about the rooftop concert. We got to talk about the rooftop concert. And I just want to say, like, Right off the bat, when I I didn't realize that they left all the recording equipment down in the basement, I I had always imagined that it was just right off camera somewhere on another roof behind a chimney. I didn't imagine that they could stretch all of that cable and all that equipment four or five flights of stairs and the length of all that cable. And I I just can't even imagine what a nightmare. I I just can't believe the roof didn't cave in. That, That too? Um, and just this whole idea of this concert is just wild. And there was a moment where Paul said early in the movie where he said we ought to do something where we like are forced yes. forcibly removed. We're, we're forbidden, yeah. And, and, and they I, want to be beaten up by the cops. It was know? so awesome that yeah. that's end up, that ended up being like yeah. it, it, he kind of guessed it. Yeah, he's so prescient. Yeah, you know. For get, sure. Before we so, get, what about when he says fifty years from now they're going to say we broke up because Yoko sat on an, on an amp? It's like how how on earth did he just say fifty years from now? Yeah, and that literally we're watching this footage fifty years later. Before what? we get absolutely on the roof, I think the conversation that that between John and Paul specifically the day before the rooftop, yes, is worth just at least yes. a cursory glance. Right. Yes, because I think in some respects that that conversation encapsulates a lot of the. Um, misdirection <laughs> difficulty communicating that we're witnessing from Mr. McCartney throughout these proceedings to where basically you know he's just grabbing at everything and he's it's like he cannot express what exactly he wants to say but it seems to be Chris seems to think that it's like his ultimate goal is to get the band back on the road yes <clears throat> do a series of shows and he perhaps sees this concert this thing that they've all been working towards as the launching to as that, like everyone to in a his in his in his mind, everyone's going to have so much fun doing this. And I think even to the end, he's still picturing it in front of an audience. Okay, and I think I read something where because they just done the the Hey Jude video the year before yeah. uh, at Twickenham with Lindsey Hogg. Yes. Where they're surrounded by Beatle fans yep. who are like right on them. Mm-hmm. Like the guy, I think Ringo was actually pretty annoyed by the dude yeah, who's like getting hovering. two on him. Yeah. yeah. And so at some point, the suggestions made that we'll have like a parameter around them or whatever to where the, the fans can't be that close, which maybe is, buys them some time on that concept. But the day before they get up to the roof, <clears throat> you've got Paul and John kind of cornered right over by the piano. And John is like, look, what do you want? Like, we are doing everything that that you've basically set into motion. 
and and Paul keeps saying, well, you know, George will say something like, you know, I don't want to do films anymore. But what he's talking about is Hard Day's Night and Help. And I'm sitting there going, they are literally filming a film. I mean, they have been for weeks. Yeah. yeah. So what is your beef? Like, yeah. what is the problem? Why, why does that matter? We are in it with that. And then so, oh, well, you know, we don't want to play live. It's like, we are playing live the next day. Yeah. All of this is in place. And Paul won't let it go. He keeps, and George Martin tries to chime in, and George, Paul shoots him down. That's why I'm talking to John and not you. Yeah, there, there, there are a couple <clears throat> things that I think are really at play. And you mentioned one of them. The, the one thing is I think that Paul really, really wants them to do shows, a series of shows. N maybe not a full tour, but maybe let's uh, hey, let's do half a dozen shows. Let's do one in London. Let's do one in New York. Let's do one in L.A. You know, I think he really wants to put that on the table, but he knows George will say no. So he's just walking on eggshells mm -hmm. not to say what he really means. So he's just kind of, he's beating around the bush. He's constantly beating around the bush. But I think the other tell and you need to go back and watch this scene, is that dude, he's so fidgety. He's tongue-jacking. He's scratching his hair constantly. He's jacking with his beard constantly. He's Dude, dude I think he's on coke. Interesting. I think, I think that, and, and he has admitted that he dabbled during yeah. that era. Yes. And I, I'm like, man, either he's had way too much coffee or he's done some blow and he is just jacking. Yeah, I, I've always heard that. I mean, since as long as I've known you and we've talked about this movie, the the original Let It Be, like it's it's one of them was on heroin, one of them was on yeah. coke, and it was a just this disaster. Yeah. And, and I think that's too simple. Yeah, it is but, too but, simple. But I think but but I I think there's some truth in that. You yes. Know? Uh at least in this scene, because Chad's right, this is a it's it's a fascinating scene because it 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 exemplifies everything that's kind of going wrong with their communication. Paul's not making, he's not getting to the point. And John is literally sitting there going, we're here. We're doing this. We're, we're, we're. When George finally appears in that scene <clears throat> and it's Michael Lindsay Hogg or one of them mentions, oh, so, you know, the rooftop tomorrow or whatever. And Paul's like, oh, no, no, we don't have to talk about that now. Yeah. He's concerned that even in this late hour that George Harrison's going to shut it down. Well, and they apparently did. Take a vote right before they went on. You've, you've read that, right? Yeah. The vote was Paul and Ringo said yes, George said no, and then they looked to John, and John sat there for a minute, and then he went, fuck it, let's go. That's awesome. Yeah. So George, and he even says it on camera. He goes, I don't want to go on the roof. Yeah. And Ringo goes, oh, I'd rather, I, I want to go on the roof. I, they did look like they were having a good time. It just took oh. a little nudging. It's yeah. like Brit whenever the yeah. Spo gets back together. <laughs> you just got to get him up there, get the music going, and everything will fall into place. You always got to bring the Spo into it. Every single episode. Uh, uh, John, well, really all of them, I, maybe not George. George doesn't look like he's having a blast on the roof, but but John really looks like he's having fun. And of course, Paul's hamming it up. I mean, Paul's just... Yeah. So, you know, if we're, get, if we're getting right to the roof, there, uh, I, I never knew this, that they just had a brief sound check of yeah. Get Back. Like, I'd seen the Let It Be film, and I knew that they had done multiple takes of certain songs. I knew that they did Don't Let Me Down twice because John had blown the lyrics. Right. And then he ends up blowing them even worse the second, <laughs> the second yeah. pass. Yeah. Like, he ruins it from the get-go. He gets the first line wrong. You're like... <laughs> To be quite honest, I always, I didn't really know which versions were on Let It Be. 
uh, and I was right. it was cool how they show, yeah. they tell you this is the version that ended up which I found very emotionally compelling for some reason every yeah. time they say this is the one I was I, I get a little shiver yes, I'm like same now here. especially now you see how much of a struggle it was to get to that one moment yep and we can all listen to you know blonde on blonde uh, you could listen to the entire sessions and be like oh that's the one that's the one yeah you hear it yeah. but you don't see that you don't see the struggle yeah. that these boys are going through so it makes it extra special i, I, I will say this from an emotional <clears throat> point of view i'm the biggest beatles nerd on the planet and there were many times throughout the first two episodes where I kind of teared up or I just got super giddy just being like, oh my God, the the reveal here. It, it's so many little moments like that. But when they played Don't Let Me Down on the Roof, the first the first pass of it, you know, where they just come in and that's the moment, there, there is a four song stretch of pure gold on yeah. the roof that starts with Don't Let Me Down one, then goes right into I've Got a Feeling, 909 and dig a pony mm -hmm. that four song stretch is three of them wound up on the let it be album yes and and the only reason don't let me down didn't is because he says hello there she got bleed blue you know he, he messes yeah. the words up right right but right then during don't let me down when you see them locked in and john and paul are looking at each other and they're like they know it yes and i've I burst into tears. Like yeah. I mean, and I was watching it alone because I had to. Yeah. And I and I just started bawling, dude. I'm almost crying talking about no, it. No, no, it's amazing. I was it, like, it, it is amazing on because of all of this, everything that's happened. But I really think it's amazing because of the just the well, the sound. I don't know what it could have sounded like to them in the moment. It probably wasn't that great. No, but you monitors can see that so invigorated. By it, totally, you know? but I, I think. Uh, they were. I bet they loved it because there weren't screaming fans. I bet that was like something that was part of that. They moment could actually for them. hear themselves. Play. Yeah, yes, yeah. but also kind of just the way that that the recordings ended up sounding. I mean, it is powerful, really powerful. How the the sound and the way they're looking at each other and just the the frigidness and the sneakiness of the being on the roof and it's just like this magic moment in time. And I'm so glad. So powerful. I'm so glad that Spectre had the presence of mind to use the rooftop versions on the actual Let It Be album because... It's that raw feeling yeah. that producers and engineers talk about. Like, you can take 17 takes, but there's the one that yeah. has the best yeah, feel. They, they, yeah. And I think that that's part of it. Like, the, just, it, the moment was so magic and the feel was right. That, Absolutely. Yeah. And and I, I don't know if you've heard the Glenn Johns mixes, the, 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 the Get Back album that was rejected that Glenn Johns presented. I have not... Well, I think I think he he I think he used nine oh nine from the roof, which was great. But his other choices, like I've got a feeling and dig a pony, and some of these others, two of us, and like he chose these really inferior early versions before they tightened them. And I think that was part of what the problem was: is John and George and Paul were hearing Glenn's preferences and saying. Those are the best takes. Oh, geez, that's not good. I mean, like when I finally heard the full Glenn Johns mix, like remastered on the new Super Deluxe Let It Be box set, mm -hmm. all I kept thinking was, why did he choose that take? Yeah. Why did he choose that take? That's not a good take. Yeah. Like John's, like they're not tight. Yeah. Whereas the one on the rooftop is tight. It's yes. like they're in tune and they're tight and they're 
really the feeling. tuning alone in the temperature and humidity of that setting is amazing that yeah. it wasn't worse than it's well and it's chris pointed out yeah. that they, they had acoustics up there <clears throat> ali yeah i can they imagine had that little pianette up there too which they didn't use that on anything but you have on here should billy have been worried on the okay. roof this is something this is this is an interesting thing on the roof when the cops show up i mean they're breaking the law it's a jailable offense, you know. The the cops, <laughs> they're, they're, maybe a finable. I, I love it. Well, but you know, he's threatening arrests. Yeah. The 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 nineteen year old cop. He's like, he's he's like, oh, they're on the roof, are they? <laughs> he's like, I'm thinking, and this is just me wondering, should Billy Preston, a young black man, be a little bit worried about these cops? Maybe in America. I don't know, man. I don't know about over there. <laughs> you don't think those guys clubbed people? I mean, uh, and I don't know in that setting if they're going to do that <laughs> with uh, all those no, people certainly watching. Certainly not on camera. Yeah, no, but, and with but, all those people watching, I, I honestly got the sense, and I'm the cops are something to the story because they were so polite, and they appeared to not really want to be. Yeah. Doing what they were having well, to they, do. Well, they were really annoyed because they were like, "I can't believe you're putting me in this position." Exactly. Yeah. That's that the, one. Th- 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 I just you could sense like that they're like, "We don't want to do this," strap. but yeah. we, we're getting all these complaints, and my boss is going to come down on me, so I got to do this. But they seemed like they were just like, "Yeah, why are you making us have to do this?" Like they uncomfortable position. But once they get up there, it's pretty obvious they're like, "I'm just going to sit here." I, they didn't really. Yeah. assert themselves. Well, you know, Ringo always said that was his big disappointment as he wanted to be dragged off his drum kit. And and as soon as McCartney turns around and sees them, you see him start to kind of ham it up. Yes. He's like, oh, they're here, they're Finally. here. Yeah, I know. You know? It, it, it's awesome. <laughs> it's awesome. But it, honestly, like... What an awkward position for them to be in. Yeah. And when the boss finally does show up, you know, I love how he asks, do you mind if I go up there? Yeah, Is this okay? Yeah. It's just amazing. You can't go up because of the weight limit. <laughs> like yeah. They're saying, no, you can't. You yeah. can't go up. Yeah. yeah. That is That's so hilarious. amazing to watch. Because your pudgy ass is going to collapse our room. <laughs> the whole scene in the Apple waiting room, as those cops are sitting there and they're like, what's happening? Can we please get this shut down? Okay, j- at least just turn off the PA. And at one point, they're like, oh, uh, we're just waiting for Derek Taylor. He's supposed to be coming through. Yeah. Derek Taylor's the publicist. Yeah, he's yeah. not going to. They're yeah. just stalling. They're yeah. beautifully stalling these Beautiful cops. Beautiful stalling. Yeah, definitely. And, uh, uh, and, so and my other thing was, you know, should Lennon be worried on the roof? And and the point of that is. I, I, I was, was he holding? Well, he has a court case pending because right. he got busted for drugs back uh, around Thanksgiving, right right when the White Album came out. Right. He's got a court case pending, which is why I think also he was nervous when he pulls the joint or the baggie or whatever it is out of his coat and he sees the camera and he's like, oh. Right, right. I think that on the roof, he and Yoko were like, oh, shit. Like, yeah. we best not be searched because we're already in trouble. Right. So the cops, with their, all their bumbling uh, politeness, somehow convince Mal Evans to go over and turn off George's amp. Yeah. And, like, once they all see what's happening, <laughs> George just reaches over and turns it back on. He's it's like, awesome. No. It's such a great, yeah. like, punk rock moment. Like, screw you. Yeah. It was coppers, great. You know? Yeah. That's, that. that's beautiful. I love, I love... Well, <laughs> some of the comments on the street are so funny. Dude, the, oh the, my one, gosh. the one guy who's like, it's a bloody stupid place for a concert. Yeah. It's like, the, you don't like the Beatles? He's like, no, they changed. Yeah, like, that, oh. that was hilarious. And then there's that old lady who, uh, who. I just can't see that it makes sense. It's like straight out of, uh, I think they somebody on the muser said this. Yeah. No, they said it's like straight out of Life of Brian or, or, or oh, yeah. Monty Python. Yeah, something. He's a very naughty boy. Yeah. yeah. 
They woke me from a nap and I do like it. <laughs> That's hilarious. Uh, and there's one girl who's like, she goes, is it the Beatles? And he goes, yeah. What are they doing on the roof? All that money they've got. You know, <laughs> so like, funny. I like the I like the brother who's like, oh, uh, yeah, I still buy their records. Yeah, you know? And the guy who says, yeah, I can have my daughter. They got they've money. Got money. Yeah, they got money. <laughs> yeah, that's... Uh, Man, I love I love watching the little playback scene where they're just listening and you and it shows all their feet tapping. Yeah, you know, it's like I guess it's maybe get back or something, and you see all of their feet tapping, kind of in sync, mm-hmm. and you're like, and all the wives are there. All the wives are looking good too. You know, Maureen, yeah. Maureen's looking good, mm-hmm. and, and Linda's looking good. There are a couple times where I looked at Yoko and I was like, look, Yoko looks pretty good. You yeah, know? you know, I mean, I know she's oft maligned by, but you know, I I, I can see what. John was was into, but mm-hmm. we, uh, but my disappointment again is where's Patty? How come Patty's never? Well, she makes a brief appearance. Brief the briefest appearance. Uh, Peter Brown shows up there towards yeah, the end. I right, kept yeah. I was watching for him the whole time. We never see Jeff Emmerich though. Yeah. Oh, that, well, no, because because by that point Emmerich was really he had he had left. He he bailed on the White Album sessions and he did not participate in uh, Let It Be. But he came back. He, for he came Abbey back Road. for Abbey Road at George Martin's. Uh, George Martin went to him and said, they're going to be on their best behavior. What about Alan Parsons as the uh, tape on? Yes. And then there was that guy. Very intense. No doubt. And young. Yeah, but like very angular brows. So there was that guy briefly, Tony Frazier, the art dealer. Oh, Robert Mm -hmm. Robert Frazier. Robert Frazier. And I I read that whenever he was around, he was potentially bringing drugs because he had some associate that gave Keith all of his drugs over when they were exiled. What about the scene, real quick, where they uh, all the all the help get on the on the Beatles gear? That was awesome, and have yeah. their little jam session. Yeah. I don't know how to feel about that. Yeah, it's very strange. It seems again ethically dubious. Like, I find it on. a little strange. Yeah, yeah. the I mean, only person who looks like he knows what he's doing is Alan Parsons. Yeah, because Parsons is sitting at the keyboard, and you're like, oh, well, he knows what he's doing. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> uh, so after the rooftop, you know, the only thing you have are the final day blooper outtakes, which. Uh, I have to say I was really disappointed that they didn't show more. But I think Jackson's MO there was that he didn't want to repeat all the stuff that had been in the Let It Be film. Right. Um, Jackson, in interviews, has said that the reason that there is so little overlap between the two is because he wants Let It Be to still have a reason to exist. Right. And, of course, I do, too. I want to see it properly released uh, Michael Lindsay Hogg has been making the rounds in interviews. I don't know if you've read any of them, but but there was a recent one he did with Rolling Stone. That was a couple of them that he did with Rolling Stone that were pretty good. Um, and he said that th- that he's been promised and that they have been working on a remaster of the film Let It Be um, with the Peter Jackson treatment. So to clean yes, it up, with clean it up. Yes, yeah. uh, that's I also think that they should make a layman's edition of this one. I think that they take this and they take out five hours. I know well, you you're going to have to You lose. know that they've already done that because okay. the premiere that they showed in London that the, Beatle, that the Beatles Sean and, and Sean and Julian, Julian and all them yeah. attended was uh, a 90-minute cut or okay. a 100-minute cut, something like that. that. Because I really think that that is the one thing about this movie that I think is off-putting to people that don't aren't obsessed with the Beatles, and maybe there's not people that don't yeah. know that. It's much not about for music. the casual fan. I, I texted it you is not the, for the, the, the casual morning, fan. The, the morning of episode one. You and I were texting, and I was like, "Oh, it, I, I, I was like shortly 
we're going to start seeing some real hate on yeah, the internet no for doubt. people who think it's too boring. I, my wife walked in when I was two hours into episode one, and she goes, how is it? And I said, you're going to hate it. Yeah. And then she sat down and watched it. She was like, yeah. This I is- don't think, I think my dad is a huge Beatles fan, and I honestly don't see him keeping attentive yeah. for the whole thing. I know I really fellow don't. musicians that we all know that have basically said the same thing. They've basically been like, I'm, I've been in a band and I've been in those rehearsals. Yeah. So why would I want to sit through eight hours well, of because it? Because it's the Beatles and because it's, it's exactly. I mean, that was, that's you, my, that was my counterpart. Have, and I said, you weren't in that band. Yeah. You have to have, you have to have this really, it's, 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 it's a curiosity about the history of the band, uh, for somebody like myself or Chad, or, I mean, you too, for that matter, Tom, it's an obsession about the history of the band. Like yes. I want to know every single detail. I want to see the supposed 18 hour cut that Peter Jackson had initially. Mm-hmm. Um, I do hope that there is an extended DVD release that has a lot of bonus footage. Um, I wish that somebody would do a supercut of Let It Be and Get Back Together so that the two things could exist as one. Yeah. But whether or not we see that, you know. I'm, I, I think that at this point they'd be fools not to do it because if they released an 18-hour DVD... I would buy it. They yeah. know that. They know that, that they know that they would have an audience for it. But I, I've actually been really surprised by how positive the reviews have been, because it's the most unique perspective. Yeah. And I, think of it. I was thinking about this the other day. What was the last huge unseen Beatle dump? Uh, you and, know, Ron Howard's touring years movie, which was, you know, which was, yeah. was only 90 minutes long, you know? Yeah. But I mean, like, this is kind of the most substantial thing since anthology. Before that, it's would it have thing, been the naked thing? Before that? Yeah. And, and that was in 03. Those are just stripped down yeah, it was just stripped yeah. tracks. Yeah. yeah. And the thing is, this this is legendary. This is this is the stuff that, that the hardcore fans have been searching for for years. I mean, Chad's got a 30-disc set of of like the Twickenham sessions, you know, yeah. that you know, you just sift through all that audio and it's mostly garbage, but but it's fascinating because it's this mystery. Yeah. It's it's at the it is the most mysterious unknown of their entire career. And yet ironically it's the most heavily documented. Yeah. It was just that we were never given access to this footage. That's crazy. Do you think there's anything else in the bucket, or is this kind of the last? I mean, what well, I else think you is could probably there? release all kinds of footage that hasn't been seen from these sessions, but I don't think there's anything else. And I that that's part of what made this so bittersweet, is is the build up, knowing, and 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 probably why I got so emotional watching the rooftop concert because not only is that it for them, I think it's it for us. I think this is the last thing we're gonna get. Yeah, I mean, you can only remaster. I mean. I, what else is there well, to there's, do? There's, yeah, that's. I mean, it's it's it's. There's nothing. There's nothing left to mine, unless you do have a DVD that has an 18 hour cut, and give give the nerds what they want. Show us all the you know. Show us Paul farting and picking his nose or whatever. And it's like, okay, I'll eat that up. But you know, the general public probably isn't going to care too much. I enjoyed the some of some engineering techniques that I watched with Glenn Johns. He's always been famous, uh, as long as I've been an engineer, there's this, if you have minimal mics, minimal pre's, you can basically record a drum set with three and sometimes four microphones. You know what he said to Don Henley? He said, hit your drums harder. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and and I, it's funny, like, if, if I didn't have a studio that had a bunch of mics and a bunch of cool pre's, 
I probably would have approached that, uh, but it's kind of hard to actually take the discipline to like not put direct mics on the toms and two mics on the kick. And it's really hard to not do that. But after watching this movie and hearing the result of four microphones placed like that, it is shocking that I've never really given that technique a try. And since I saw this movie, I've done two or three drum recordings with the four mic Glenn Johns technique. And it is so amazing how good the toms sound when, they, when they're not close mic. Right. It's ridiculous how that's awesome. So, it's so, so cool, natural though. and musical sounding. And then also I retooled my gobos, uh, my, you know, those barricades that they had to put up in the small studio when they came to Apple. Um, because they needed to have the drums attenuated to where they could all hear themselves. And they just threw up these pretty cheap-looking, like, barricade things that didn't look like they had any heft or weight to them, but they just blocked the sound. So I came out here. I was inspired to, like, retool my gobos, and I'm thrilled with what I'm getting that's, that's sound-wise. Fantastic. It's yeah. really I, cool. I love, that, I love that this has kind of spawned <clears throat> some new... Some when you guys ever come back over and jam, uh, which I think you guys are scheduled to do on Monday and Tuesday, Next right? Next week, yeah. Yeah, so yeah, you'll a... you'll get a taste of what I'm talking about because yeah. I'm obviously going to roll on that, and uh, it'll sound different than your previous recordings. Yeah. Anyway. This has uh, been pretty funny. Uh, I, I really love getting to talk about this stuff, and I feel like we've we've touched on some some good points here, you know, without hopefully without being too redundant. No, but I feel like there's so much we didn't even, I'm, nobody mentioned Ringo's fart. <laughs> I've farted. I've, I've uh, farted. It's I've farted. Yes, that's that was I, the thing. Is the, and George Martin's response, oh, I haven't caught it yet. <laughs> and, well, I thought I could just sit here and not say anything, but then I thought I better say something. <laughs> so it's great. such a brilliant, and meanwhile, there's like this furious argument going on in the background. I've farted. Yeah. <laughs> I just love it. Yeah, and Paul's just ranting about something. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, I haven't caught it yet. It's such a beautiful little whimsical beetly moment. <laughs> There's so many little things. Like I, 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 I just crack up when I like you know when George smiles real big and you go, oh man, he's got some English teeth. No doubt. You know, or like you notice like when they show footage of the Beatles in the montage or they show little flashback photos and then they show them. Now you go, man, Paul looks like he's put on about 25 pounds between 1968 and 1969. Like, you know, there's like just little, but then, but then by the summer of 69, he loses that weight. Right. You know, like it's, that's very, uh, to me, they're so human, you know, (laughs) kind of, I really couldn't believe how some of those close up shots of their, uh, extremities and faces and hair it's they're quite grimy uh oh, all yeah. the time like they'll show up in the morning and you most people in this day and age have brushed their teeth taken a shower maybe cleaned their fingernails and it's very obvious that they sometimes hadn't showered from the d- day before See, i don't know i think george has the best looking head of hair i think I've maybe maybe his hair is pretty remarkable too it's though. good but old. but i mean they're just kind of <clears throat> greasy and grimy and a little just dirty and the, then you Add in the cigarette smoke the, and the, the cigars. The it's amount just... of cigarettes that are smoked in this film, it, it it it's kind of sad in hindsight when you think of George and his cancer. Yeah, but, uh, you just like, could you imagine how no. awful that place smelled? I cannot. And and just, I mean, 
it had to have been so filthy. There's just yeah. crap everywhere in that yeah. studio. No doubt. Empty, you know, cigarette butts and empty bottles and just <laughs> How trash. Is it when all this new gear is being brought in, nobody, none of these handlers and these little roadie people can take the cardboard box out of the room. I, I mean, know. it's laying around. It's a big Leslie box. No, it's it like Christmas morning where you've just They're got They're trying wrapping. to figure out how to take the top off the roads, <laughs> this yeah. brand new roads that nobody knows how to eat. <laughs> it's nuts. That's, yeah, it's really amazing. And, you know, uh, Mal, go get me a lace bow tie. And then next scene you see he's got a bow tie on. Or he's asking for some shoes at one point. Yeah. Oh, what about, and he's got those, I mean, George. George's outfits are, are pretty outrageous. Dude, he's got George those big fuzzy boots, it. you know. Yeah, the pirate the, shirt. The yeah. pink pinstripe, I think <laughs> yeah. is a really bold choice. Yeah, amazing Definitely. stuff. We could talk about that all day. So. Well, dudes, this was fun. Chad, thanks for joining us today. Oh, thanks yeah. for having me. We Hopefully, should, we should have you again sometime. Yeah, I'd be delighted. Your acumen you is quite right. Mm-hmm. Good talk. Later. Later.